G'day and welcome to Beyond the Fences NBA Season Preview Series. This is episode four, the Central Division, featuring the Cleveland Cavaliers, Chicago Bulls, Detroit Pistons, Indiana Pacers, and the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is a little bit late. It's a couple of weeks into the season at the time of release. Uh, four out of the five of these were recorded prior to the season starting. Unfortunately, I couldn't work anything out with someone for the Indiana Pacers. So I tried to wait as long as I could, but unfortunately, I just had to pull the trigger in the end and I've recorded that one solo. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I think the previews turned out really well. Thanks for listening in advance. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, leave a rating, whatever you do helps us out. And other than that, let's get into the episode. Welcome back to Beyond the Fences NBA season previews, and we're talking all things Chicago Bulls now. And joining me from Bulls HQ is Mark Karantzoulis. Mate, how are you? Ben, I'm doing well, mate. Uh, happy to be jumping on and talking Bulls with you. It's been it's actually been a few weeks since I've done a podcast, specifically on the Bulls as well. So uh, it's good to be uh, back on on a pod and speaking about this uh, this stupid team that I <laughs> I guess supposedly cover via podcast for. Yeah, we're in that point of the offseason now, aren't we? It's just like the, the yeah. Uh, well, I guess training camp's just starting, so it should be ramping yeah. up again soon. But yeah, it's been a it's been a rough few weeks, a quiet few weeks. I kind of enjoyed having the time off, to be honest with you. Like I, I, some people miss it, but like I, I always enjoy the time off, and uh, I, I'm almost I'm almost like don't want it to come back in a weird way, or I wish it would come back a few weeks later. I'm kind of liking having the break off, but um, I'm sure once it's once it's back, and you know we're into the swing of things it'll be all good and uh we'll be back to you know yammering on about about bulls basketball as we as we typically do every year yeah i guess you know once you've gone through so many years of the same stuff it's nice to get a break <laughs> yeah exactly exactly uh you, you're excited though for the season i guess yeah i am I and mean, that's the irony uh because <laughs> uh, uh, this off season has probably been you know for oh, just maybe since 2010 probably the best bulls off season that i can remember uh, so in that sense, yeah, I am very excited because this is probably the most talented team the team has actually put together since 2010, 2011, when they won 60-odd games and went to the conference finals in Tibbs's first year. So, yeah, like the, I am excited in that sense, the way they've operated in the offseason, which I'm sure we'll get into, but uh, the players that they've brought through, the team that they've amassed at this point, like it is a good, talented team. They need to obviously work it out on the court. It's a completely remodeled roster. So from that point of view, it's going to be intriguing. No matter what happens, it's going to be interesting. Obviously, we're, we're hopeful that it's going to be a positive experience, but um, mm-hmm. you know, time will tell. But yeah, it should be fun. It should be interesting. Yeah, it's all it's all in spreadsheets at this point. And as we know, games aren't one yeah. on spreadsheets. Um, <laughs> I guess the first thing we'll touch on, and you know, you, you've been in NBA media now for a little while. You know how much the national media fan bases they love narratives. So I guess from a Bulls perspective, um, what's the most prevalent narrative surrounding the team coming into the season? Well, I think 
the, the first main one, and this has kind of been just uh, more general over the off season. There's there's a few doubters within the national media, and you know they're not even rating the the Bulls to the point where some aren't even even putting them putting them in the the playing race type thing. They've got them sitting in eleventh or twelfth in the East, which is kind of bonkers to me. But um, so I think there's there's a few. I don't know if it's the national media in general, but maybe there's a few prominent voices that just don't believe in this team, maybe because they're not Zach Levine fans. Maybe they're not the Rosen fans, Vucevic fans, whatever it may be. I mean, those guys carry some level of stigma and they have some some things to prove, I suppose, as individuals. So maybe it's that culmination of those guys coming together and people just don't rate those players, therefore don't rate this team. And, you know, maybe they haven't necessarily been paying attention to the balls over the last four years because this team has just been, you know, really bad. So um, I don't, it doesn't, well, wouldn't surprise me if not many of these national media types have actually been watching the balls play over the last four years. So I think, I think initially it'll just be um, gauging how this team performs against certain narratives that have been set by national media types who just don't rate this team, don't necessarily think they could be, you know, a top six, top seven team in the East. So I think that's going to be one of the most prevalent narratives and maybe adjacent to that will be Zach Levine's contract status. I think that'll be a talking point throughout the season. That'll be closely tied to how the Bulls perform. Obviously, if he's winning the Bulls or the Bulls are winning rather, then it's far more likely that he stays and re-ups in Chicago and there's less noise around his upcoming free agency. But, you know, if the team for whatever reason underperforms, doesn't doesn't win as many games as, as, as us fans hope they do, then I think the... Uh, the rhetoric around Zach Levine and the fact he's an un, unrestricted free agent, probably the, the headline uh, free agent coming into the next off season. Uh, I think that may, well, that that narrative may pick up steam at that point. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but I reckon they're the two main narratives that I, that we'll be seeing related to the Bulls um, from a national media point of view. Yeah, I can definitely relate to the, um, I guess the perception surrounding a player you know, like Zach Levine, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with NFL, but, you know, my team just lost uh, Matthew Stafford um, and they've been, you know, terrible for years and years and years. But everyone who followed the team would be, you know, defending him and saying how good he was. He just needed a better mm-hmm. team slash organization. And then lo and behold, he's just joined a, a real team and he looks and everyone's like, oh my God, he's so good. Like, well, no, he's been <laughs> like this for five years now. Um, yeah. And I guess that is kind of married with Zach Levine. They see the guy that was in Minnesota, and I guess even early Chicago, yeah. you know, it's just this high volume kind of guy, not that efficient and, you know, very one way. Um, but yeah, it's crazy to me the, I guess the, the, not archaic, but I guess how, how people do get stuck into those perceptions of a guy. And then, you know, they're, they're driving their judgments based on things that were three, four years ago, uh, when really he's probably a, not, not to use arbitrary measurements like top this, top that, um, but, you know, a star at the Olympics, a top, I'd say a top 30 guy in the league at worst, probably top 20, you know, depending on how yeah. you value it. So, yeah, yeah. Like, I definitely understand that frustration. Yeah, it's it's just annoying because, like, I mean, the same was true for, for Devin Booker. Like, we're not even 12 months removed where he was copying the same sort of criticisms that Zach was at, or is at the moment and, you know, Lo and behold, you bring in Chris Paul, you bring in Jay Crowder, you actually put some good pieces around him, you bring in a good coach that knows what he's bloody well doing. And then, you know, all of a sudden, this guy that was much maligned, who you just thought was a one-way chucker, turns into an actual decent basketball player. Uh, and then suddenly the uh, the narrative around them sort of changes, not to suggest that he really changes a player, 
or really added that much extra to his game because like a lot of Suns fans were basically saying what you just said, like this, you know, Booker was being at this level or has shown glimpses of this sort of stuff, you know, a season beforehand, two seasons beforehand. And it's true. It's true with Zach Levine now. And I, I guess what shits me as well, um, uh, like, People complain about the Bulls roster. Like they, they, they constantly complain about the Bulls roster. And this is even maybe more true about Chicago media that don't necessarily believe about the Bulls or don't believe in the Bulls, I should say. Like they spend all season whining about the talent on this roster and how the whole thing needs to be blown up, how there's so many bad players on the roster. But then they simultaneously look at Zach Levine and go, well, why isn't this guy winning? Why isn't this guy dragging his team to the playoffs? I'm like, how are you like making one argument that's, you're clearly right on this. Like this roster stinks, or it did. It did stink last season. But then you don't have the ability to maybe connect that as to why Zach isn't winning with these bomb players around him. Same was true with Devin Booker, and, you know, and countless others. So I don't know. People just don't think things through. Um, I don't. Maybe they just find enough takes just for have for the, for the sake of having takes. But I think if they just thought through what they're actually saying, then uh, then maybe they would uh, have a greater ability to maybe say some things that are, are more rational. Oh uh, yeah, the art of the take is one that you know it's crafted over time, um, yeah. and yeah, uh, yeah, some of the yeah. So you're telling me that Fred Hoiberg and Jim Boylan aren't elite NBA level coaches? Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. <laughs> you, you whine all year about Jim Boylan, and then you wonder why this team is imploding. It's like, come on, like it's, it's, it's pretty obvious. Um, yeah, obviously you mentioned, I guess, having better pieces around Zach Levine now, and that leads us nicely into you know addition or loss. Uh, what transaction do you think will have the biggest impact on the team? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I, I, I would assume, and I'm hopeful that it's Demar Derozan, and you know maybe he's the highest profile name in. And typically, the you know when you bring through the the highest profile guy in that, you know generally that's the guy that will have the biggest impact. But thinking about where the what you know the deficiencies of the last Bulls roster from last season, like there was just no one on the perimeter that could do anything beyond Zach Levine. Like maybe Kobe White, you know every fourth game or something would do something of note where he was legitimately affecting the offense and making opposing defenses, like having to think about him, but generally, you know, close the games at the end of fourth quarter. It was Zach, it was Zach Levine time. And that was in part because, you know, Zach Levine is that good, but also just due to the fact that the way, the way the roster was constructed, like who the hell else is going to do anything off the bounce for this team, or even like, are you going to feed the ball into Thad Young to make a play at the end of the game? Or are you, are you really going to be passing the ball to, to Larry Markin or Patrick Williams to make a play at the end of the game? No, obviously you're going to Zach Levine. And, you know, that was just a problem for this team. They just didn't really have perimeter creation um, beyond Zach. They didn't really have a, a good secondary creator beyond Zach Levine. And they didn't really have anyone else beyond Levine who could get, who uh, could get to the free throw line. So uh, DeRozan really covers off all of those elements. I mean, he probably walks in and he's potentially the best passer on this team, which, you know, again, a lot of people probably didn't watch the Spurs last season, but maybe that's why they're still harboring previous takes about DeRozan from his Toronto days. But the dude was averaging six, seven assists a game last season, last season for the Spurs. So he brings that element of playmaking that the Bulls just haven't had. And, you know, he's he's, he's an efficient player as uh, DeMar DeRozan, despite not having a three-point shot. So, like, how is he efficient? Because he's awesome in the mid-range and he gets to the free-throw line. Like, he's very Jimmy Butler in that sense. So, um, I think I think he's going to be the, the biggest addition just due to the fact that he brings so many things this team needs, even if he does have a glaring a weakness like his uh, lack of three-point shot. Are you going to miss Larry Markkinen? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
No, I was uh, ready for him to go uh, a long time ago. I was very hopeful he was going to be uh, gone at the de- at the deadline for Lonzo. That's uh, that didn't happen, but uh, we got Lonzo through in uh, in free agency, obviously. But um, yeah, I was I was very comfortable in seeing uh, Larry go, and um, to me, he's just a bench big. Like that, that's ultimately where I see his role being. And you know, he didn't like that role. He didn't want that role in Chicago. He wanted his money. He got his money from the Cavs. But uh, I'm not even sure if Larry's going to start in Cleveland, to be honest with you. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, to me, he's a sixth man type, maybe a seventh guy, guy that comes in as your, as your, you know, your big off the bench who comes in and spots up. And I guess the issue with him was he, he he could never really play center, and maybe he eventually transforms himself to the point where he can, and that makes him more valuable. And maybe he becomes a starter at that point. But uh, at this point, he's just a power forward that comes in and spots up and shoots threes, which has value to it, but um, not to the tune of fifteen, sixteen million dollars annually, and. Uh, you know the type of role he wanted, so um, no, I was I was I was keen to see him go. Um, and you mentioned Lonzo Ball. I saw, yeah, over the last few months, even before the deadline, a lot of Bulls fans, you know, manifesting Lonzo to <laughs> Chicago, and it it has happened. It, what do you think his role is now? Excited are you for him in Chicago? Yeah, it's going to be interesting because um, I mean, the, at a media day today, there was talks about how he expects and how the Bulls have maybe expecting him to be more of a traditional point guard type, which wasn't necessarily the case for him in New Orleans last season, where he was probably more of a three and D wing type option. So um, I don't know how much of that is just, you know, media day fodder versus what's actually going to happen. But um, that may be an interesting narrative as well. Going back to your, your, your initial question, maybe that picks up momentum in the season if he's really good, or maybe if he's not really good, but wants that role and maybe doesn't get that role. So I think that's going to be interesting, but you know, what he does bring, uh, you know, we're losing Larry Markin and, and he's shooting. But um, if you look at the splits, if you look at the volume, uh, Larry Markin percentage-wise, attempts-wise, bake-wise, is very similar to Lonzo. So it, what you're losing from Larry in shooting, you get back with Lonzo, um, which is interesting because uh, Markin comes with the perception that he's a really good shooter, whereas Lonzo maybe doesn't necessarily have that. Yep. People are still uh, skeptical around that, but um, you know the numbers suggest they're they're pretty much even. So very interested to see what he can do as a spot a spot up guy off uh, off Levine and Demar brings point guard defense with his team. You know, desperately needed last season. Part of the issue with his team and its defense last year last season was. Uh, you know, the point of attack defense was just miserable. So he, along with Caruso, you know, just really will shore up the point of attack defense, will, which will ultimately help out the, the rest of the defense. So, um, yeah, look, Lonzo is going to be a good addition. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how he fits in as the fourth guy, which he, he will be in the starting unit. Maybe he came to Chicago expecting to be a, something a little bit more. But, um, you know, throughout, throughout his career, he's been a team guy, obviously a super smart guy. Uh, I, I expect him to fit in pretty seamlessly, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I before we move on, I, I don't think I, it, I think I legally have to ask this question. I don't want to dwell too much on you guys, but, um, you know, Lavar. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, look, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I haven't heard, I haven't heard anything about Lavar to be honest with you. Uh, I don't even know what Lavar's doing anymore, and maybe no. I, I haven't heard Lavar at all. Like, I, I, I would assume he would have um, popped up a lot more with. Um, Lamello doing things that Lamello has been doing. Like Lamello has probably surpassed Lonzo at this point, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, I have no idea what Lavar is doing and that's probably a good thing. And, and I hope it stays that way. But, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure we're not going to hear too much from him. Yeah. I just remember last, uh, no, a couple, uh, a couple of years ago now, I think, yeah, the Pistons brought in Lee Angelo uh, for the preseason. And then when, yeah. when they cut him, he was like, oh, the Pistons are trash. Or, or, yeah, we are, but it's not because of that. Um, <laughs> uh 
what's a what's a best case scenario for the season? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. So the the way I'm reading the East at the moment is you know you've got you, you've got your two clear cut teams, and you know maybe maybe that isn't so clear cut anymore if Cairo just continues to be a, a bit of a weirdo and maybe just <laughs> misses half of the season. But um, it should be the Nets and the Bucks as the the two best teams in the East and. Thereafter, I think a lot of people probably have the, the sixes and, and the heat in three and four. But for me, I've kind of got like spots three and three through eight or three through nine kind of wide open because um, so much of it is dependent on, you know, the roster, it's the rosters of these team, cohesion, injuries, that sort of stuff. But like, I mean, the sixes, for example, Ben Simmons, who the hell knows what that, how that's going to play out. But like if, if Simmons is sitting out games and, you know, that is unresolved for 20, 30-odd games or whatever it may be, and, and the Sixers don't have Simmons, like they're clearly a worse team. Are they just going to slot into third? I don't think so. And similarly with the Heat, like I really like their starting unit, but I don't trust that bench at all. And, you know, Kyle Lowry's 35, 36. PJ Tucker is a similar of age. So I don't know. Like I, there's a chance the Heat's, I guess don't really get it together in the regular season as well, which gives a chance for a team like the Bulls who, if they get their shit together from the jump, then maybe they can slide into a third seed or a fourth seed, which maybe is wishful wishful thinking because there's teams like the Celtics and the Hawks like obviously looming in the East. And I would expect those teams to have a better chance of getting to that third or fourth seed if the Sixers or Heat fall off, given those teams are largely untouched and coming back and there's, there'll be more community uh, continuity with those teams whereas this is a completely new Bulls team so I would expect them to, to need 10 or 15 games to get to um, I guess gelling and understand how to play with each other but um, I guess best case scenario if, if things go perfectly from day dot and maybe if things fall around uh, you know if things fall over around them rather then maybe they can get up into the third or fourth seed something like that and you know assuming health and assuming things don't happen for other teams around them, then I, I think that's a viable option. I don't think it's the most likely uh, scenario, but uh, in terms of best outcomes, then, you know, a fourth seed, uh, a home, home court advantage, I, I think that's in play. And not, <clears throat> now, not to shit on you, uh, <laughs> you know, your sunshine and lollipops, but, you know, the flip side of that, the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, the worst case scenario is, you know, I, I don't think they'll be outside of the plane, um, but the worst case scenario is, you know, they're the ninth or tenth seed for whatever reason, it doesn't come together. Like maybe Lonzo, uh, not Lonzo, Levine and DeMar just don't get it together. Maybe maybe Lonzo, I don't know, just doesn't find his role. The bench that the Bulls have isn't very experienced. Their, their front court isn't strong at all. If Vucevic goes down for an extended period of time, then this team just has you know, really no credible backup bigs at this point. I know a lot of Bulls fans are excited about Tony Bradley and what he can be as a backup <laughs> center, but um, I think we need to calm down just a bit. I, he couldn't necessarily um, start and really fill the role that Vucevic plays. So uh, th- there is scope where they have weaknesses on this roster and, you know, bench shooting is another one. So if those things become more prevalent, if this team just doesn't gel necessarily the way like I hope it does, then then maybe they're sitting eighth, ninth, tenth, something like that, competing with you know the Pacers, the Wizards, the Raptors, these sorts of teams more so than the Celtics and, and Hawks. So, you know, after spending the money that they did in the off season to finish, you know, within the plane, and, and maybe you sneak in as a seven or eight seed, but if that doesn't work and you, you're sitting outside the playoffs at the end of the season, that's probably the worst outcome. It sounds like you need to bring back Cristiano Felicio. <laughs> well, I mean. He's living his best life in Europe now, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, 
you know, good on him for stealing $32 million from the Reinsdorf. Oh. So I'll always appreciate was that, um, doing so. <laughs> was that during that mad off season that uh, Dan yeah, and Moskov got sure. the 48 hour deluxe package? Oh, it might have been the season after. I, can't, I think it was oh. 2017 from memory, but I mean, the, the cap was still spiking at that point, still going up. And um, yeah, people had money and yeah. didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so look, I. I in any time, anyone can steal money off, off this ownership group, but uh, <laughs> I completely endorse them. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to Felicio. He's gone to Europe now, playing basketball in Germany, I believe, living a good life. So, um, yeah, shout out to Felicio. Shout out, Felicio. Um, which, I guess, you know, draft pick or rookie scale, just underrated guy in general, you know, before they become overrated because we throw around the word underrated so much that it loses all meaning. Uh, but which one of those guys are you most excited for a breakout? Yeah, well, I guess look the way the, the Bulls roster is constructed at this point, like they've pretty much sold off all their young guys. They got rid of Lowry. They got rid of Wendell Carter. Like they were the two main ones that they got rid of. Chris Dunn amounted to nothing. He was gone prior to the season, uh, prior to last season. So pretty much the only guys they really have at the moment who are on their rookie scale deals is Patrick Williams, Kobe White, and uh, uh, Troy Brown Jr. So I'm pretty sure off memory they're, they're the only ones that are you know, on that rookie scale type deal. So based on that crop of players, it's, it's the easier answer is Patrick Williams because he's the the piece, you know, the number four pick from the last draft who, you know, depending on where his career arc goes, may dramatically shift what the Bulls are able to do. Like if I, I just spoke about before that, you know, all things going as well as they possibly could, maybe the Bulls are the, the fourth seed in the East. But if Patrick Williams comes in and makes a leap, in his second season or his third season and, and makes a leap that I wasn't necessarily expecting, then maybe that changes the, the uh, trajectory of this fran- franchise to the point where, you know, you've got another bona fide stud in that starting lineup and um, it really helps from that standpoint. So he is probably obviously the one that most of the fan base is excited about given, you know, what he could be and, and the fact that he's probably the main piece that they have from a young player point of view that can really change the dimension of this team. But um in saying that, like, I'm, I'm kind of happy with where Kobe White fits in, into the picture now. Like as a starting point guard, it was a complete mess, and I just hated the idea of it all of last season. And I know a lot of fans were annoyed about me saying as much, but <laughs> now the fact that he'll be coming off the bench probably as a two guard, uh, playing next to Caruso, and you know, playing in a bench that will need his his jump shooting, need his scoring, he's in the right role in my opinion right now. Like this is the role he should have, and. I don't know, like it, it's unfortunate for Kobe White because he, he hurt his shoulder over the offseason. So maybe he'll have a slow start to the season because of that. And, you know, he's missed some development time. He's missed, you know, time to gel with these new guys and obviously missed time on court as well. But, you know, all things being equal, if he can come back healthy and um, can play the role that I think is best fit with with within his skill set, that then Kobe White could have a really good year as well. But, um yeah, it's really those two guys, but um, the answer is most definitely Patrick Williams because, you know, what he can become. And the sooner he becomes that, given that Vucevic and DeRozan, they've they're still got good years ahead of them, but, um, you know, they're in their early 30s. If he can become uh, better quicker than, than I expect, then um, it changes what this team can be. Yeah, I was going to bring up, you know, whether you thought Kobe White still had anything left, but uh, that, that pretty much answers that. Yeah, so I guess, you know, it, the perception of him has shifted from, you know, why aren't you a star yet to, well, I guess how the team is now, it's more, we just need you to fill your role. 
Yeah, for sure. And look, like I said, I was, I was a critic of Kobe and, and that wasn't necessarily fair because the Bulls kind of put him in a situation where he wasn't going to succeed. Like this team just didn't really have many point guards on, on the roster last season. And I mean, beyond him, it was, it was Sadoransky and Archie Diakono. And, you know, I was a fan of both of them, but ultimately they're bench guys. But, um, you know, Kobe, and I just didn't rate Kobe as a point guard because he's never really been a point guard in his career. Like he's just been a guy that comes in and scores and he does that really well. And, you know, one of his best traits is his ability just to spot up off ball and, and shoot. So, you know, thinking about his game, he just fit as a, as an off-ball guy and coming off the bench and the way, the role that he had in his rookie season, I thought was the perfect role for him, which is ironic to say, given the coach at that point was Jim Boylan, but that, that was kind of <laughs> the one thing he did get right. Um, but, you know, Kobe will be fitting back into that role now. So um, I'm actually excited about what Kobe can do this season. I'm, I'm happy that the role is in and I think it makes a lot of sense for him. If there's going to be one player on the Bulls that is going to win an individual award. Um, who is it and why, I guess? Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I, I, I mean, realistically, it'll be no one because <laughs> no one really has a chance at anything. Because this, I mean, this is the thing about this team. Like, it's, it's a collection of guys who, you know, if we, if we want to talk about rankings and lists and all that nonsense that has been, you know, circulating on, you know, within the basketball media, basketball Twitter, et cetera, over the last couple of weeks, it's been, you know, ESPN's, top 100 SIs, top 100, all that sort of stuff. Like Zach grades out as like a top 30-ish player based on those lists. But then you've got DeRozan and Vucevic, who like the 40th best player in the league, the 50th best player in the league, whatever it may be. So like they've got three top 50 guys, which is nice. We haven't had that for a very long time. Right. But you don't necessarily have like a LeBron or a Luca or a Giannis type guy who you can pencil in to, to in, into some sort of major award. Um, and I don't know if you necessarily counting like all NBA as a, an individual award. Maybe that's a, an accolade that we can maybe count them in. So maybe yeah. Zach has an outside chance of an all NBA team if things go very, very well for him. But um, beyond that, I, I, I don't really see any other ball having any chance to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, unless, yeah, I, I just can't see it apart, apart from an all, all NBA honor for uh, Levine, but even that's pretty slim to be honest with you. Well, there's always, I guess, that guy at the start of the season that's dragging an overmatched team that everyone expected to be like a 7-8 into, like, you know, after 20 games, they're sitting in third. So if that's yeah. the Bulls, then you have to think that Zach Levine, will, Zach Levine will be getting the hipsters MVP votes early. Yeah, I mean, look, that's possible. And I made a tweet the other day. Um, well, there was a tweet that I responded to that was, you know, banging on about Levine being an MVP candidate. And I basically just said, you know, calm down, like... <laughs> Yeah, that's, there's one there's one school of thought where you know people are like no Zach's not even a top 30 guy and then you've got Bulls fans sort of arguing for him to be like a potential sleeper MVP candidate and like the answer and the, or the truth of it is somewhere in the middle but um, you know maybe you know crazier things have happened maybe the Bulls like I said get up into that top three or four seed maybe if they finish the season as you know with 52 54 wins something like that and Levine has another monster season as he did last season and, and the narrative starts to swing there then maybe he is a you know not an MVP a true MVP candidate like a top one or two or three guy but maybe he's someone that you know people are throwing on their ballot as a a fifth guy or something like that but uh, yeah I don't know stranger things have happened it happened with Derek Rose oh, I'm not expecting that to happen again but <laughs> yeah whatever it is uh, whatever the award is I'm, I'm assuming Levine has the best chance. Well, yeah, there's always that one local media guy that absolutely homers the hell out of the pick and puts Levine, like, we'll put their guy on their ballot. So that there's always that, yeah. you know, if, if only for like 
the most minor of recognition that, that there'll be someone will have Levine on his ballot. I don't know who the Chicago voter is, but they'll they'll have him on there. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And I guess the other one would be uh, again, mate, we just talked about him, but like if Kobe White has an impressive season off the bench and maybe he just doesn't have the notoriety to maybe garner those sorts of awards. But like if he can come off the bench and just chip in 13 points, 14 points in a Lou Williams type role, then he's probably not going to win it because you know there's there's better versions of Kobe off the bench for other teams like we just saw with Jordan Clarkson but if he can be a, a force you know from an offensive standpoint off the bench then then maybe he's a, a smoky for for the six-man type award but um yeah realistically it's, it's Levine and yeah even he doesn't have a a real chance I feel like I'm trying to push you to, to believe a bit more than what you what you want to <laughs> No, look, the, the way I feel about it, like, is this, this team is just very even. I don't, they don't have that one standout guy. Like, if they're going to get it done and do what yeah. I hope they can do, it'll be, it'll be because they, they come together as a team and they play as a team. So they're yeah. not going to be a team that's driven by one guy, like, like the Mavs are, for example, or, or like the Rockets were with, uh, with Harden or whatever it might be. Like, if they're going to get it done, it'll be a collective type thing. So in that sense, I'm not expecting you know, one guy to dominate the ball. I'm not expecting one guy to put up all the numbers. And to be fair, if that is the case, then the season hasn't gone to plan because they just don't have the talent to really have one guy owning everything and everyone following because, yeah, they just simply don't have that talent. This needs to be a uh, done by, done as a committee. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, Levine, Vucevic, DeMar, like that they all find a way to be 19, 20 plus point per game scorers and, they all pick their spots and the Bulls just out-talent teams in that sense. But um, yeah, they just don't have a, a top 10 guy, a top 15 guy at this point. Okay, I'm done cheerleading the Bulls. That felt a bit dirty to me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know how much of a betting man you are, but I, I looked up the uh, the win totals, the over-unders. And according to the one that I'm going to go off now for all the teams, Chicago is listed at 41 and a half. So where do you sit on that line? Yeah, look, I'm definitely not a betting man, that's for sure. I, I tried betting on the NBA once, thinking I had a competitive bet advantage because yeah, I was just an idiot that thought I was smart and yep, yep. I wasn't because I got in the hole pretty quickly. <laughs> so um, I certainly know nothing about betting. Um, but if, if I was to take an over, uh, I would probably, or over under, then I would probably go over. I wouldn't feel super confident about it because to me, this feels like a, a 44 win team. Like the Bulls have gotten better, but so has the Eastern Conference, to be fair. So like, this team may be like you know significantly better than the last last team I watched I watched last season, but the East too has gotten better to the point where like teams six, seven, eight in the East maybe they don't have you know huge win to, win totals, but in any other year in the in the shitty Eastern Conference maybe they would have been a, a four or five seed sort of thing. So yeah. um, I, I would pick over, but not significantly enough over that I feel super confident about it. Like if that number was like a thirty nine or a, you know, 39 and a half, I'd be very confident about it. But to me, this team should win 44, 45 games. But all it takes is one injury. And obviously that, that goes pear-shaped and maybe that doesn't happen. But uh, I would go the over. Yeah, those pesky odds makers making you, you know, um and ah about over under. It's almost like they know what yeah. they're doing, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's almost like they got, you know, billions on the line or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and f- I guess finally... You know, it can be safe, mild, bold, you know, whatever your Nando's spice level is. But what's your prediction? Just give me a prediction for the season. Yeah, well, I generally go medium, to be honest with you, in my, in my Nando's. So do I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't usually handle the, the super hot stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm going there for the hot stuff. I'm not going there for the, the lemon and herb type takes. No, so, we don't do um, lemon and herb on here. No, nah, look, I don't know. I'm expecting, I guess my, 
I don't feel like it's a hot take, but maybe it is depending on, like we said at the top, that maybe for certain national media types. But I think this team could be as good as the Hawks or the Celtics or insert any other team in, in these that you, you want to, that you want to, that you think can compete for that 4-5 type of seed in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I, th- I think this team can be right there. A lot of people have like the Hornets above this team or, you know, they're, they're comparing the Bulls to the Pacers or something like that. But, um, you know, some people even think the Knicks will be better than the Bulls, which, you know, based on last season, if you're just looking at, you know, their performance last season and I don't know, maybe you can talk yourself into the Knicks being better than the Bulls. But for me, I, I think the Bulls are right there with the Hawks and the Celtics in terms of being right there almost with the Sixers and, and Heat, to be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, my I don't know if it's a hot take. Maybe it is. Maybe it's a bold prediction. Maybe it is based on narrative, but I think this team, if it comes together, will be right there within, you know, fighting with fighting with, you know, for a third, maybe fourth, maybe fifth seed. So um, I'm pretty confident about that. But um, maybe they'll look, make, yeah, maybe they'll make me look dumb, and uh, I'll regret <laughs> saying all this. No, nah, I like it. Uh, where can our people follow you if they are so inclined? Yeah, well, look, if they are so inclined and want to hear, uh, you know. I think I'm the only Australian talking about the Bulls in a podcasting form, or at least consistently. But um, I, maybe I'm speaking out of turn there. <laughs> maybe there's other <laughs> podcasts out there that I'm not aware of. Apologies if there are. But uh, yeah, if you want to hear uh, another Australian just banging on about the Bulls, um, then come listen to me on Bulls HQ. That's my uh, podcast where I might do my stuff. Um, generally release an episode every week during the season, maybe less uh, less so during the off season. But um, yeah, looking forward to this season and. Hopefully we'll have enough bandwidth to uh, get some podcasts out. I've got a four month four month old at the moment who is um, not not allowing me to sleep much, which is uh, making me very unproductive in a lot of ways at the moment. But um, I'm hoping he doesn't impact my NBA season. But uh, time will tell. But uh, yeah, if you want to hear me, Balls HQ Twitter at MK Hoops. That's where you can uh, see me uh, banging on about the Bulls pretty much. Ninety nine percent of my tweets are about the Bulls. Yep. Well, mate, we appreciate stealing half an hour of your time to come on and talk Bulls. Um, yeah, best of luck for the season. I hope the Pistons beat you, but other than that, all good. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, mate. Uh, yes, I'm slightly jealous of your squad, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, you got a lot of nice pieces on there, but um, hopefully it's a few years away. But uh, yeah, yeah, I would say all the best, but uh, I wouldn't mean it. But um, yeah, hopefully, <laughs> well, obviously we'll be seeing each other, what, like three or four times this, this season. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, all good. Thanks, mate, for coming on. Have a good one. No worries, man. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James with the rejection. All right. Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Fences NBA season previews. And we are talking all about the Cleveland Cavaliers now. And joining us all the way from Wild World of Sports, Chris Silva, mate. How are you? What's going on, my man? Uh, getting excited. We're, what are we, three weeks out now to from opening night? Um, it just feels real now that we've had the media day and, you know, all the corny interviews <laughs> out of the way, all the, fo- all the photo shoots and stuff. It just feels real. So, the, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, excited to get started. How are you going? Oh, oh, mate, I'm exactly the same. You know, we've had the slow motion videos of guys crossing over um, <laughs> some chairs or the dark gyms with or the lights. Uh, yeah, it's NBA season's back. I'm feeling good. Um, yeah, and we no, haven't- no more... No more Chris Brickley Instagram videos. Okay. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly right. No more. Yeah, no more like uh, Yi Junlian chair workouts. No more <laughs> shooting in an empty gym. We're back. Um, That's it. 
how are you feeling going into the season for your Cavs? Um, it's an interesting one. Like on one hand, it's exciting because we have, I feel like what a lot of um, Cavs fans feel that that we have a very good, you know, young core, um, which we should because we've been at the top end of the draft for what like the last three, four years. So on one hand, it's exciting. Um, but on the other hand, there is a sense of angst because this season very much does feel like it's a make or break for this entire rebuild because um, you've got guys like Colin Sexton, um, Darius Garland will be next summer. Um, they're all coming up uh, extension eligible. So uh, this season will tell you whether they've nailed this rebuild or not because the last thing you want to do is commit a lot of uh you know salary capital to a to a core that's not going to get you anywhere and this team has done no winning over the past three seasons so <laughs> um yeah it's an interesting one so it's exciting and 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 a little bit nerve-wracking as well yeah look i think where our teams are in similar situations but maybe you're a bit further along the need to win scale but you know speaking yeah. of the rebuild and the guys you're bringing in and all that sort of stuff. We know how much the media loves a narrative to pin their, mm-hmm. to pin their bylines to. So from a Cavs perspective, what do you think that main narrative going into the season is? Uh, it's a tough one. There's a few, but I think from a national media perspective, just because he's still a big name, I think it's the leading narrative is what, what happens with Kevin Love. I mean, um, they've strengthened the position that he plays, I um, mean, bringing Larry Markin and, and obviously uh, drafting Evan Mobley number three. So, um, and Kevin Love, by all accounts, is not keen for a buyout. So it's sort of what's going to give here first. Um, and I think especially because a guy like him, if he is does become available on the buyout market, he can be of very great value to uh, any number of contenders, you know, a team like Brooklyn. Like, he's a guy that could easily fit on a really good team. And it could be a situation much like we saw with Blake Griffin when he went to um, when he went to Brooklyn last, last year, that he goes to a new situation, a winning situation, and suddenly looks revitalised. So <laughs> I think that's going to be, from a national perspective, um, the number one, number one storyline from from a local Cavs centric perspective, I think is going to be uh, the continued development of Colin Sexton. Um, obviously, over the summer, his name was floated up a lot in trade talks, um, and there was a sense that the Cavs weren't really um, weren't weren't really keen on paying him big money. Um, paying him a max deal, which I think by all accounts, his camp seems to think he warrants. Um, and the word has been, you know, from media day as well, that his camp is sort of talking about the extensions given to De'Aaron Fox and uh, Donovan Mitchell over the last few years um, as sort of what they want, whereas the Cavs probably wants something a little, little bit closer to what Jalen Brown got. Um, from Boston, so um, I think from what from what I gained from from Media Day 
it seems as though there's an interest from both parties to sort of stay together and, and find a middle ground on a long-term extension. Um, but Collins' play this year and whether he's able to grow, um, whether he's able to become a better defender, whether he's able to continue making strides in the playmaking area, it's going to determine whether the deal that the Cavs give him is a good one or something that um, really holds him back um, in terms of Cap's perspective moving forward. Um, so locally, I think, you know, that's definitely one to watch. Yeah, I, I guess the main thing that I'd notice as a casual Cavs observer, obviously, as an outside uh, an outsider, is the whole dynamic yeah. between Darius Garland and Colin Sexton. Um, I think mm. most people have kind of shifted that onto you know, Garland being the guy and then it's more where does Sexton fit in? If the Cavs yeah. were to pay him, <clears throat> excuse me, if the Cavs were to pay him, you know, that 15, 20, whatever it is, million dollar post-rookie extension, where would you stand mm-hmm. in that? Again, like it's, it's, it's so dependent on what he does this season. Um, like I've been probably a, a Sexton believer um, more than most, you know, throughout his career. I think you can't fault his work ethic and there's been tangible improvements he's made season on season, you know. When he first came into the league, like his playmaking was virtually nil and, um, you know, he wasn't a guy who shot threes at all. And then within his rookie season, he went from a guy who refused to shoot threes to, a, I think, a 40% three-point shooter by the end. So he's... I think guys like that um, are really important, especially when they're your leaders, they set the culture. And he's a guy who just works and works and works. And he's got such a great attitude. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a positive aspect to having guys like that around. But then at the same time, his flaws are very real, you know. Um, for all his raw, raw numbers um, and the counting stats being good, his advanced metrics just you know, playing haven't been good. And um, as we were talking about before, the, they just this is a team that and a core that just hasn't won in the past three years. So do you commit a large amount to your, of your cap to a, to a backcourt that hasn't proven it can win? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it's again, this season will tell you a lot about um, whether the decision to pay them is the right thing to do. Yeah. Looking to more roster construction now over the off-season, yep. addition or loss, um, which transaction do you think will have the largest impact on the team? I think um, it's it's got to be one of the more recent transactions they did, which was um, the trade to uh, send Larry Nance to Portland and bring in Larry Markinen. Um, You know, Nance was a massive part of what they did defensively last year. Um, you know, he really set the tone. I think the Cavs, if I'm not mistaken, the first week or so, the first week or the first month, very early in the season, they were actually very, very good defensively and got off to a bit of a hot start on the back of their defense. And with Kevin Love out, a large part of that was Larry Nance, you know, his ability to guard three to three through to five, um, you know, his steals numbers were good. He's um, 
it was our, yeah, just getting in passing lanes and being disruptive and sort of being that Swiss army knife that we've seen, you know, he, he was like an Audi Draymond Green, <laughs> if you like. Um, but, yeah, that's no disrespect because Draymond Green is one of the best defenders we've seen, you know what I'm saying? But um, so he was a big part of what they did defensively and their defensive identity. So losing that um, a lot of emphasis and a lot of responsibility now goes on Isaac Okoro. Can he make strides like he did, uh, you know, building off his rookie season? And then you got Jared Allen, who they've just given a hundred million to. So the responsibility now falls on those guys. And then when you talk about the offensive end for the Cavs, it's all about how can they best construct a roster where they can give space to the guards to operate. And Larry Markinen is going to do that. You know, he has his, he's a, he has his flaws as well, um, especially on the defensive end. But what one thing he's elite at and one elite skill he brings is his shooting, you know, for, for his size and for that position. He's, he's a marksman from deep. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that happens. You know, do they, because they've committed 17 million to Larry Markman. Do you commit that much money to a guy you're going to bring off the bench? Um, does it, how does his addition impact the minutes that you give Kevin Love, the minutes that you give to Evan Mobley, who you drafted with the third pick overall? So there's a lot of implications, I think, based around just that one transaction. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I did want to touch quickly on um, another guy that you've brought in, Ricky Rubio. Do you think yeah. this is just, you know, classic veteran leadership or uh, for the two young guys, you know, sex land? Or yeah. is it an audition? Is it a, a stump throw? How would you characterize Ricky Rubio's addition? I, I actually really loved um, the Rubio audition. Um, they made it, because the Cavs went into the off season, I think they had the full the full taxpayer mid level um, available, and we thought, you know, once the season ended, that their avenue, you know, the especially with Delhi, you know, retiring and going back to the NBL, um, the backup point guard was the primary need for this team. Um, you know, last season, whenever Darius Garland either didn't play or was off the court, um, their production just plummeted. Um, so that was a primary need. And we initially thought that, you know, the means to getting getting a backup point guard would be through free agency. Now, as it turned out, they would have been priced out of a lot of these backup point guards that were available because they earned a lot of money. So I think it was smart from a Cavs perspective to get a guy in Rubio in buyer of trade where you didn't really give away too much. Um, and he's a guy who I think is going to be fantastic for the, for the guards. You know, he's already, I think Darius Garland's locker locker room is locker is right next to Rubio. So he's, he's already mentioned how much he's going to pick Rubio's brain and, and Rubio has shown at his previous stops, you know, whether it be, uh, Minnesota or even Phoenix where Devin Booker is able to learn a lot from him. So what it does is that it allows for for the minutes that Garland is off the court, you can now play, you don't have to play those Colin Sexton point guard minutes where that's not his best position. You can play Sexton alongside Rubio and now Sexton is 
in a position where he's a play finisher rather than a play initiator. And I think that's where he's proven that he's most efficient. Um, and, and so I think it's going to be really good for both of their development in that sense. Um, and then also you've got the interesting wrinkle, especially if Kevin Love isn't a starter, which is highly likely. Having Kevin Love and Ruby off the bench, like they have a lot of chemistry together. So they can sort of form their little fun bench unit as well. So I think um, I think it's a, it's a deal that it's dependent on this, how, how the fit is this season because Rubio is a free agent at the end of the year. But I think if it goes well, I think both sides would be amicable to sort of extending that beyond the year. What does the best case scenario for Cleveland look like this season? I think the best case, you know, if we think everything breaks right, you know, everything fits or or the guards, the players that they have on the roster take a stride. I think the best case scenario is they get into one of those bottom two seeds, you know, in the, in the playoffs. So either they like, they finish the regular season in the seventh or eighth spot, as opposed to having getting there via the play-in. Um, Wait, seven eight is still playing though. It's seven to, through ten is playing. Yeah, but but sorry, what I mean is like by the time the regular season is done, that they're in the seventh spot as opposed to the tenth spot. Yeah, okay. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that would be a fantastic result, um, and I think that's the, that's been the internal goal and and what the messaging has been all, all along from the moment last season finished was playoffs this year, playoffs this year. And I, I think, and I think that's fair. I think, I think it's time, time this franchise, you know, shifted to winning mode again. Yeah. And I guess on a, on a flip side, then what's the worst case scenario? Yeah. Well, the worst case scenario I think is um, finishing sort of near where they did last year, where they were 13th, um, not really close in the end to one of those uh, playing positions. You know, there were 11 games off uh, the Hornets who finished in that 10th playing spot. And really, I think we sh- we saw in those playing games, the 10th seed didn't really look like they belonged at all. Um, <laughs> so so they were a mile off last year um, and they'll, they'll be the first to tell you that. And so if there's no real tangible growth from last year, um, a worst case scenario, you know, would open up so many questions, you know, is like, like I mentioned before, is it worth paying this guard tandem that you've spent so much draft capital on? Um, you know, is JB Bickerstaff the right man to lead this team forward? I think there's, there's still question marks there, um, you know, and, and then on top of that, a situation where the Kevin Love thing just gets super toxic, um, which Look, I don't, I don't think it's out of the realms of possibility, to be honest. Like, you, this team, as much as I'm a believer in their core, they haven't, they don't deserve the benefit of doubt um, because they haven't proven anything, you know? Um, so, yeah, that, that for me would be the worst case scenario, I think. Yeah, it's always that worry when you are a lower team, when that leap's going to come and if you're, you end up being stuck yeah. in this, not even, it's not even mediocrity, mediocrity yet. Really, it's just it's you know the the basement. It's just bad. Yeah, it's just bad. Yeah, like 
I think I think the Cavs would kill to be a mediocre team. Like, you know, they would, <laughs> they would love to be they would love to be the Indiana Pacers. Um, but <laughs> the fact of the matter is, regardless of how talented you think the young core is, there they're a mile off even being the Pacers, let alone you know even thinking of being a top four seed. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a I would say it's definitely a make or break season. There's no question that. You know, that goes, it's a make or break season for the players. It's a make or break season for the coach. And I would say it's a make or break season for the GM who's, yeah. you know, been at the helm helm of this the whole thing. Yeah. Um, let's go to, you know, some breakouts and it, it can be a draft pick, a rookie scale guy, just an underrated guy in general, but who are you most excited for a breakout mm. season? Uh, I think... I'm excited for Sexton. Um, I am. Um, but if I had to pick, you know, one real, you know, guy who's going to really, really take a leap and put the league on notice, I would have to go Darius Garland. Um, I think that we've seen throughout, you know, the last 20 years, what that team USA experienced, how much it helps guys and him being able to experience that, you know, first on the select team and then actually, um, you know, being put onto the squad for a few pre-Olympic games, um, I think it was just an awesome, awesome experience. And we saw last season he really, you know, because there were, you know, you got to remember heading into last season, there were questions over whether that was even a good pick at number five. And I think he showed that he can be a franchise-level point guard, you know, with his playmaking. Um, I think he can be you know much more selfish with his scoring and really that's the area of growth where he's a knockdown three three point shooter like he should be taking five to seven threes a night and I think at the moment he's maybe three to five if you know just just off the top of my head so he's got a massive um he's got a massive room for growth and I think his development will really determine the ceiling of this team because, um, you know, Sexton might be the leading score, scorer, but I think anyone who watches the Cavs properly will tell you that Garland is actually their best player. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what playmaking strides he makes. Does he, I think he averaged six and a half or six assists or something last year. Does he get that? Can he get that up to seven and a half, eight? You know, he averaged, I think, 17 points a game. Can he get that up to maybe 21, 22? Um, and really challenge for like an all-star spot. Um, that's very, very exciting to me. And I think one thing that really made not only myself, but a lot of Cavs fans excited was um, this revelation that S- Steph Curry was asked, you know, during the off season about <laughs> which, yo- which young player that he thought was ready to take the leap. And he said, Darius Garland. And, you know, that's a, I would say a pretty good judge at the point guard position. So <laughs> we we were all we were all very very excited about that. Um, so yeah, no, he's he's definitely a guy to watch. And I think the way he plays, um, he's someone that the neutral fan can easily get on board as well. Whereas I understand Colin Sexton isn't the isn't the easiest watch at the best of times. I uh, there was that game against Brooklyn. Don't think, well, we'll never think the streets will always remember that. Oh, mate, I was, 
Colin had an out of body experience that game, and I think I had an out of body experience as a fan as well. All right, well, well, let's keep this PG, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> if there is going to be a player on the Cavs that's going to win an individual award, um, and you yep. can include, you know, the All NBA and all that, like those squads, but who, 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 and why? Um, well, it's it's probably the answers same as as the last question i think darius garland for most improved um he he i think he gave he got a vote last year if i'm not mistaken and that was on a pretty crappy team um so if if the Cavs really make strides like they expect to internally um he's going to be at the forefront of that and i think that will that'll put him right up in contention for most improved player so yeah, if I had to pick one guy, I'll say him. Um, there's also um, you could another option if you want a different answer could probably be I don't know if he'll win an award, but you know Jared Allen possibly making a defensive team, um, an all defense team, whether yep. it's first or second, yep. um, is again a, a possibility as well. What about any hype for Evan Mobley as rookie of the year, or is that a bit too far out? You reckon? I think. The Rookie of the Year award, and me and you have spoken about this before on previous shows as well, it's it's so much of it is based on counting stats. And I just don't think he's going to have the counting stats. Um, now, I think he might impact winning more than the other guys do straight off the bat just because he's a really smart player. And I think, he, I think he'll really, especially defensively, we spoke about the whole Larry Nance's departure is going to leave. I think Mobley can, you know, fix a lot of that stuff um, or, or feel a lot of that stuff, I should say. So I, I think he'll have a good rookie season. I just don't think he's going to be up there, you know, with the – he's not going to have many high-scoring games. We saw in the summer league, that's not really his his thing anyway. So yep. – but I think, you know, he should he should have a solid enough season where he, he makes an all-rookie team for sure. Yeah. Now – the punters love talking about uh, betting lines and win totals and all that sort of stuff. So according to my, the thing uh, that I'm using for all the teams, Vegas yep. has the win line for the Cavs at 28 and a half. And we were talking off air before we started and we both thought that's a bit tragic. Um, so are you taking mm-hmm. the over or the under? I'm definitely taking the over. <laughs> I think, you know, we spoke before they were, they were 22 and 50 last season obviously in the shorter season. So that averages to about 25 wins. Um, so I, I think they'll definitely be more than three wins better than they were last season. Um, they'd hope to be a lot better. You know, they'd hope to be a lot better than that. You know, I think as we spoke about before, that they would be aiming to get somewhere between high 30s and low 40s in the win total. Um, yep. You know, from from all the noise coming uh, coming out of, the franchise this offseason, that's that's very much the expectation. So, yeah, I'd definitely go over. Yeah, and if you look at just the order of the Eastern Conference based on that, the only there's only two teams worse off on an over-under scale, and it's Detroit at 25.5 and, and Orlando yeah. at 23.5. I lost. Yeah, 23.5. So, yeah. I mean, and look, that lines up with where they finished last year, but that still yeah. seems... You know the, the next gap. It's it's like uh, ten wins almost to the next line. So 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. I think I would I think a, a line of maybe, I don't know, 30, 32 and a half would have been probably something where you'd have to think about it more. I think 28, you definitely take over. There's some good money. <laughs> <laughs> There's the gambling tip for everyone. And finally, <laughs> I'm that, that is definitely not a gambling tip because I'm <laughs> probably the worst better. Um <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, in the history of sport betting. Oh uh, no! Yeah, I'm uh, yeah second only to me. Um, <laughs> and and just finally, uh, yeah. What what do you have a prediction for the season of any heat level you want? Oh, let's see. And I I know you, so you're not going to go safe. You're going to go full extra hot. Um, yeah, I, I'm Tabasco baby all the time. Um, God. I reckon. I reckon. My my take is one of the backcourt is you know in the all star team. Wow! At the end of the season, yeah, I think so. I uh, think I think one of one of Darius Garland or Colin Sexton that they're, they're going to take a leap, um, and they're going to be if 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 the team improves like like I think it should, um, one one of those guys is going to get in. And more likely, Garland. I would say so, yeah. I would say so because yeah. I, I just think I think his game, his game, again, like I said before, is more appealing to to people yeah. who are not from the team, and and especially you know, obviously he's not going to be a starter, so it's going to be it's going to come down to the coaches' votes, and yep. so yeah, I think I think he he's much more likely, even though I think Sexton. Will probably have the better, you know, counting stats. He'll have the better point points per game. You know, I expect Colin to be our leading scorer once again this season. But yeah, I think DG DG will will be in the, get an all star spot this year. Yeah, and he's also got the added narrative boost of being in that, like you mentioned earlier, the select team and then preseason. Oh, sorry, yeah. um, exhibition pre Olympics. So that's always a nice little casual boost. Yeah, and he's and he's got the he's got the clutch clutch. Clutch juice as well. Let's not forget that. I thought you were going to say he's got the clutch trade on two and I was about to kick you out right there. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Uh, where can people find you and follow you, and maybe addresses if you're so inclined? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, find me on Twitter at c c de silver twenty three. Um, as as Ben mentioned before, Tabasco level hot takes at all times um, <laughs> in any given sport. Um, and then just just for writing stuff, just uh, the wide world of sports, so www.os.com.au. All right, there we have it. Cleveland Cavaliers done. Thanks for coming on, my man. And, you know, best of luck for the season. Hopefully, for your sake and all the punters that have followed you in, you hit that overs mark. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for the chat. With the first pick in the 2021 NBA draft, the Detroit Pistons select... Cade Cunningham from Oklahoma State University. Okay, welcome back to Beyond the Fences NBA season previews. And this is the one that I think I'm a little bit more excited about uh, over all the other ones because we are finally talking my Detroit Pistons and joining me from Hoops Habit, it's Duncan Smith. How are you? I'm doing great, Ben. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy that we were able to find a schedule time that works for both of us um, and then happy that at least at the moment um, my flock of dogs are being pretty quiet so uh, <laughs> it seems like things are working out really well so far yeah no it was a 
a little bit of a mission, obviously lining up time zones. Um, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, but I guess, you know, how are you feeling just on a general level about this season? Um, I, I think we can probably blame this mostly on the injuries, but <laughs> I'm feeling a little bit, uh, a little more tepid, I guess, towards um, their outlook now than I was, say, a month ago. Uh, it's just like the wave of injuries, uh, the ambiguity of the injury reports, the fact that um, the Pistons have, I think, never gotten an injury right as far as like uh, uh, timelines, diagnosis, you know, just everything. It, I'm obviously being slightly facetious, yeah. um, but, you know, it's just like waves of injuries and the fact that like, um, generally speaking, like whatever is the worst case outcome for a piston injury uh, seems to be the case. Um, so, you know, with Cade having an ankle, uh, Killian having a concussion, I guess a couple nights ago it was so bad he couldn't even look at his phone screen. Um, I, I, you know, as a Pistons fan, I'm just like looking for a reason to expect the other shooter drop because uh, <laughs> usually it does. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Just uh, pessimistic yeah. and uh, you know, nothing's really changed other than like some injuries. And they haven't looked good in the preseason, but um, you know, injuries are a killer, as we know. Yeah, as soon as you know, I know it's only been a couple of games, but Cade obviously hasn't played yet in preseason, and I think that's just me. I've just, I guess, stretched, extrapolated that to the the, the point of like, ah, oh, well, then it's everything's gone wrong. It's all like the season's over. He's not going to play. It's going to be a real. Um, like Ben Simmons rookie year situation where he just doesn't play because um, of injury and it, 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 everything's gone wrong. I don't like it. And then a Sadiq Bay as well with his ankle as well. So uh, nothing's fun. Nothing's looking good. It's, it's, it's great. It's terrific. Um, but I guess obviously narratives are a massive thing around teams going into the season, whether it's national media or all, I guess just out the fan base in general, but is there one particular storyline that you think has surrounded the team? Um, I think that like, the early days of the offseason are obviously like absolutely dominated with uh, with Cade talk. Um, but I think we kind of have a pretty good idea of like what he's going to be. Uh, and he's going to be like a really high floor for a, a rookie. Um, the ceiling, you know, hopefully it's also high. But we, we know he's going to at least be pretty good, most likely, you know, assuming he ever plays in the NBA. We'll, we'll see about that. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think for me, the the overwhelming storyline, the thing that I'm most curious about, maybe to uh, to describe it sort of like my own personal storyline, uh, is uh, what we're going to see out of Killian. Um, because uh, as far as floors go, uh, it's, it's pretty low for him, um, unlike with, with Cade. Um, and, you know, if that shot just never works, if he's always a 30% field goal shooter and 22% from three or whatever, uh, it doesn't really matter if he can pass the ball real well and play, like, sturdy defense. Uh, like, that's not an NBA guy. So, obviously, I think that um, there's there's reason to hope that, uh, that that shot will come around as he gets uh, more acclimated. Like, you know, for all we know, he's just straight into practice like nobody's business. Um, when he is able to practice because again, he's not healthy. Um, but that that's my biggest uh, storyline and also question and concern. I think with this team is 
uh, like the wide range of outcomes that that Killian Hayes can have uh, this season. Yeah, I think Killian Hayes last year probably had not a worst case scenario rookie year, but it was pretty. It was up there. Um, you know, obviously tearing his hip, labrum. What like seven games in, and then coming back and just looking really rusty, not getting those reps in that you kind of hoped for a team that was outwardly bad anyway. So it would have been an absolutely perfect time for him to get those minutes, and then. Yeah, it just it just didn't work out that way. Uh, and another thing I wanted to talk about in this bit was, I guess, you know, the expected contribution this year of Jeremy Grant, probably not as much of a surprise factor this year around. You know, teams would be prepared for him. Um, what do you think about him this year? You know, I think that, uh, like, obviously, I just keep pounding this health thing because, like, it's, it's a concern. Uh, I think that his own health kind of wore down as last season went on and like he had a, a fantastic first third of the season and then just kind of like coasted off of the laurels of those like early days. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, I, I would say that not only did like the load of being kind of the only NBA guy in the roster at times uh, kind of wear him down. But I think teams also kind of, they were able to sort of like read the book on him. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the secret was out of the bag uh, pretty quick and it was easy to just like throw everything at, at stopping him. And, uh, you know, if, if DeLon Wright or, or Corey Joseph or somebody wants to have a night, like so be it. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, this is going to be a very interesting season for him and fairly critical as well. Um, see if he can be the guy where other teams like actually know he is the guy. Um, you know, Cade will eventually like sort of lighten his load. That's something that I've kind of like been pounding away at in my own coverage of the distance series. I think that like just having a guy who's uh, NBA level, uh, which I, I would say that Cade will be very quickly, if not already, uh, is going to go a long way. Uh, you know, losing uh, losing Blake Griffin and Derek Rose last season, they weren't good uh, by their their own standards, but simply having them on the floor with him, I think, made his life a little easier. Um, and he needs, he needs like a counterpart like that. You know, he's not going to be your LeBron or, or your Giannis who can just like drag you like to the promised land all by himself. Yeah. Like he's going to have to have, um, some, some accomplices basically. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if, uh, if this team is able to return to full strength, um, in the 20, uh, the 21, 22 season, um, he's going to have, uh, those pieces, but his own health is going to be important as well. Uh, you know, some of his, uh, late season health issues may have been uh, fudging it so the team didn't get fined for arresting veterans a little too much um, last season. But uh, he's he's going to have to uh, bear a long season of uh, of physical uh, wear and tear, and I think that that's going to be a big thing for him this year. Yeah, uh, is there a guy on the team? Uh, that maybe the team has gotten or lost over the off season that you think like a transaction that you think will have the largest impact on the team. Um, I think Kelly Olnick is going to be uh, very good for this team. I think that uh, playing alongside Cade is going to, uh, is going to open things up for him. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that the, uh, the truth of Kelly Olnick is somewhere between his, uh, his, his heat tenure where he wasn't great. And his raucous tenure where he, uh, he very much was, but he was also like uh, a looter in a riot, so to speak, uh, <laughs> where uh, every every player on that team that could like uh, do anything was just trying to get stats on a bad team, basically. So um, I think that as far as 
uh, major transactions. That's uh, it's really the, the biggest ticket item as well. So I mean, it, it's not as though it is uh, some sort of revolutionary thing to, to think that Olenek is the biggest addition. Uh, but you know, I, I liked it as soon as I heard it, and I. Uh, Historically, I don't really like piston deals as soon as I hear them. Uh, <laughs> usually, it has to go through the filter of this is going to be awful uh, before I kind of come around uh, yes. on it. Yep. And with with uh, with Olenek, I did not have that particular process, which means it's probably going to be terrible, and I, I just have it reversed, right? Um, yep. yep. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think that he's uh, he's a big a big deal for this team. I think that he's uh, going to be very useful. Like whether I. Whether they end up using him uh, primarily as a starter or the bench or whatever, I think that he's going to play a pretty big role. Um, as, as far as like the guys that left this team, you know, Seku, it's it's a shame that uh, things didn't work out. Uh, hopefully, they work out in LA or beyond. Um, but you know, I, I don't think that there were a lot of really crucial um, departures of guys yeah. that we missed. You know, Dennis Smith Jr. is uh, simply. Um, not much of an absence, for example. No. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think that there is really one uh, major plus or minus, and it was uh, Kelly Olnick followed far in the distance by Seiko's departure. Yeah, and I guess, obviously, Olenek basically replaces Mason Plumley, um, And I think Plumley was good for the team last year, but I think Olenek, at least for what the team wants to do and how they want to play, he's probably the better, better fit. And... You know, now that you've got Caden as well, Plumlee doesn't become as important with that secondary playmaking that he kind of provided last year. Yeah, playmaking isn't necessarily going to be an issue for these guys, uh, especially when you can either uh, have Caden Killian on the floor at the same time or you can stagger them, uh, starter bench, whatever. Like there should always be like at least one pretty good playmaker out there and you don't necessarily need to be running things from the center. Um, and you know, it, it seemed I kind of had this feeling after uh, after they got the number one pick that uh, that accelerated um, sort of like their their uh, their path back to contention at least in Weaver's eyes. And I think Plumley was uh, kind of like a, a not exactly a placeholder, but he was he was uh, he was there to make certain guys' lives lives easier. Uh, you know, Killian in particular, um, and with with Cade now um, on this team, the the things that you needed uh, plumbing around for, you don't necessarily need uh, to have him around for in year two. You know, um, I think Cade is a more uh, polished uh, product in a lot of ways, um, and uh, you don't you don't necessarily need that uh, that pick and ro- that reliable pick and roll partner uh, to to help Killian. Uh, you know, acclimate to the NBA simply because um, you're, you're going to have more options and more more go-to yep. um, opportunities with Cade than you do with Killian. So it, it's just, you don't really need uh, Killian's babysitter anymore when you've got Cade Cunningham. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's a what's a best case scenario look like for Detroit then this year? Um, I have them. My, my own personal like win total is uh, 30 wins for the Pistons. Um, I think that the best case scenario could be uh, a little higher, like maybe 32, 33 wins if everything goes really well. Um, I, I think that the worst case scenario could be something fairly similar to this season, though, uh, this past season. Um, if, you know, if the wheels fall off and these injuries end up being a true plague. 
Yeah, I think 30 wins. Is, is there a scenario where you see that maybe uh, somehow they're in a play-in hunt? I think they will need outside help, you know, injuries and, and things like that. Uh, I, I just think the East got, like, too strong um, in order for the Pistons to really uh, be able to, to mount a play-in challenge. Uh, the Pistons definitely got better this year, like this this past offseason. Uh, yeah. No question about that. But like everybody else just got like, so much better in the East, I think. Um, like even stagnating or getting a little bit better is uh, it's not really going to make the difference. I don't think when you've got teams like Chicago uh, yeah. who just like really went for it, you know. Yeah. Um, the Knicks are still going to be good. Uh, there, there's like the Wizards got better, I think. Uh, yeah. I think that uh, Charlotte is going to be in the mix again. The Pacers are going to be, you know, not good, but probably better than the Pistons and in the mix. Um, so I just think they have, they're going to need like a lot of help from other teams uh, having yeah. injuries and things going badly. Uh, or, you know, Killian ends up, or pardon me, Cage ends up being one of the like best rookies in recent history and, um, you know, propels them kind of like, uh, uh, like John Morant did in Memphis. You know, I think that the Grizzlies, rebuild is uh is kind of aspirational for the pistons and something it, obviously like that it, that involves getting lucky in a whole lot of draft picks and yep. uh <laughs> you know making making lucky picks your uh, your goal uh is not necessarily a replicable strategy <laughs> but uh but at the same time like uh you know if that's a path that the pistons can somehow follow it's not that bad it, it's going to take something like that though i think uh for them to have a real uh legitimate play in opportunity yeah and i think the difference now is obviously the teams of the last five years you know the um drummond griffin reggie jackson luke canard um that that sort of era where they were fighting for that eight seed but it was kind of you know it was mediocrity let's put it, it let's call it what it is um it's obviously a lot different now if you're scrapping for an eight seed now with a bunch of young guys that are probably, if that was to happen, playing above their station rather than, you know, a bunch of boring vets. Yeah. You know, you kind of knew every year what you're going to get with those guys. Um, You, we were, if everybody was, uh, you know, in perfect health and they got like some, some good breaks here and there, like maybe it's a team that could be like a six seed, six or seven seed. Um, and when they didn't get uh, that, that great fortune, um, they could potentially be one of the worst teams in the NBA. And, um, you know, the, the upside wasn't really there, especially like uh, like future potential upside. Whereas with this team, um, you know, I, I think that like the upside is not an eight seed. This is, is certainly not an eight seed. I think that's like beyond the scope of um, likelihood. Uh, but... There's the this year anyway. over yeah. a couple of seasons that you know the same group might be able to be a team that uh, that does have a whole lot more potential than your eight seed and like those those Pistons squads of old like they're never going to break through that that uh, threshold. No, no, I'm glad it's over. Uh, is there <laughs> yeah. is there a guy on the team that uh, maybe underrated guy or a rookie scale recent draft pick and any one of those younger guys that we're not talking about that you're excited for a breakout um he's he's not as young as the rookies uh but uh Diallo Amadou Diallo is somebody that I'm very interested to see 
um, with, uh, you know, with a, a reasonable uh, team-friendly investment in, uh, in order to, like, lock him up for a um, multi-year span uh, and, like, the knowledge that he is going to be uh, a piece of the puzzle in Detroit, um, you know, giving him uh, a full season as opposed to like, uh, you know, just like a post deadline period where he had to sort of acclimate and uh, figure things out on the fly, uh, giving him a full season, I think is be um, positive for him. So he, he's a guy that I'm really interested to see uh, how, how things go for him. Yeah. I was very excited. I'm interested when they acquired him for Svi. And as much as I liked Svi Mihailuk, um, I think there was a similar with, I guess, also representative of that older era. I know he wasn't really part of that team per se, but kind of that knew what you were getting capped. And even he had a kind of disappointing year last year for the most part, maybe turned it on a little bit before he got traded. But I think Diallo Diallo represents a lot of what this team's about, a lot of this untapped potential. Easily the best athlete on the team and maybe one of the best athletes in the league, I think the GMs voted on. Um, You know, probably not the greatest offensive player generally, but had that 30, whatever it was, point explosion. Um. And just, yeah, I, I think he's definitely, he would have been my answer as well easily for someone. Because I think if you get him that bigger role, it's going to be an important guy coming off the bench. I think, I don't think he'll start. But, and even in the preseason, what we've seen when guys have been out, he still hasn't been starting. So that's interesting, uh, but I kind of get it because he can run with that second unit who generally likes to play a little bit higher pace. Um, and having him around guys like, you know, Corey Joseph and Josh Jackson, I think will be good for him. Yeah, no question. Um you know, I, I would say that uh, Casey has had to make some um, rotational compromises that I think he was hoping not to have to uh, simply because of all the injuries and it's been harder to keep units together that he wanted to keep together. Um, so, you know, I, I think that we may see some evolution between now and the regular season, you know, hopefully, hopefully there's uh, an uptick in health so that like some of those uh, preconceived rotations that Casey had uh, lined up we can actually sort of see um, how those, those formulate. Yep. And just quickly on Diallo, yeah, I think the one thing that's going to be important for him is his three-point shooting because I think he probably was a little bit hot when he joined Detroit. He had 39, he shot 39% um, on easily his highest um, frequency in any team that he played for. So I think if that turns out to be not a mirage, that'd be absolute gravy. Yeah, it's funny. I think he shot the like the exact same number um, of of threes with the Pistons as he did, as he did with the Thunder. Uh, just a whole lot more of them went in with the Pistons. So you know maybe there's something uh, something in the air um, in Detroit. <laughs> there wasn't in Oklahoma City, um, but you know if if that does become uh, somehow replicable or even a couple points down from that, you know I think he shot like thirty nine percent. If he could shoot. 37% that'd be that'd be gravy considering like all the athletic uh yep. tools that he brings to the table. Um is there anyone on the team that you think could win one of those individual awards? Um well I think uh Jeremy Grant's most improved player uh opportunity was last year and now over. Um yep. he's too good I, now. Yep. He's too good now. Uh, you know, he, he made a pretty big leap. I don't think you're going to see a leap bigger than that this year. No, uh, I love that. that but no. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, probably asking for a bit much for the lad. 
Um, I think probably the most likely candidate would be uh, Kate Cunningham for Rookie of the Year. I just don't think that anybody else really stands out uh, in in the awards categories, yeah. uh, really anywhere other than like maybe some minor uh, community awards like that. But I think Tobias Harris has uh, has that one on lock uh, um, as far <laughs> as like piston former piston contingents go. Yeah, uh, so I, I would say that like if there's one candidate that has like any shot right now. Uh, for for a postseason award, um, it would be uh, Cade for Rookie of the Year. I think I'm gonna say Cade for our MVP, and I would have been all on that train. Um, I, I there now are, we're talking. Yeah, I've got a couple of other ones. You know, um, I guess Diallo could maybe be an outside shot at most improvement. He probably wouldn't get the numbers increase that it comes along with that award usually because I think his role won't change too much. Another one I kind of like, um, and again, it's the numbers award, maybe. Again, all outside chances, but um, uh, Josh Jackson could be an outside six man um, just by virtue of scoring a lot of points. And uh, voters don't care too much about efficiency, so I think. And we haven't even spoken about Josh a lot. I think he's going to have a really interesting role this year, kind of bouncing between spot starting and running that second unit when he needs to. But I think if he has a similar start to the season like he did last year, but kind of carries that on a bit longer, his injury last year didn't help him. But I think he's an outside shot at a at a six man nod. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think for like if it was an impact and not just like pure uh, like raw points per game numbers, uh, it's very possible. Um, you know his 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 defense is really good. You know, obviously, like you you said, like uh, voters are not that interested in efficiency when it comes to six man. Uh, yeah, I do question that he will be able to like score the points. Uh, needed to be able to keep up with, um, you know, your Lou Williamses and, and so forth of the world, um, but it, you know, award aside, I think he's going to be a really good uh, sixth, seventh type man. Um, it's funny, I, I've I spent so much of the off season like just expecting him to get traded. Uh, <laughs> I have I have kind of like stuck to my guns that he will be traded by the trade deadline, but I don't really know anymore if that's the case. I think that uh, anything that I assume is going to happen. Um, transactionally on this team, I will be wrong about it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I, th- I think, yeah, I, I would have assumed Josh was the odd man out as well going into the offseason, especially uh, when they re-signed Diallo as well. And then I've got, I've kind of got to fall back in love with him. And I look, I love him as a player. It's just, I've got to prepare myself again. I've got to go through that whole um, acclimation period all over again with him like I did last year. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the team, Josh. <laughs> Um, now I ask everyone this, the win lines that the odds makers put out Detroit's listed at 25 and a half. And I think based on our discussions, uh, you're going over on that. I'm going over. Um, I'm not as, uh, as bullish as I was when the, when the line came out, but I th- that's just like my own internal pessimism. You know, the injuries will go away. These guys are going to be able to play. Um, they're, they're not going to be looking at, uh, like a skeleton crew playing, uh, the bulk of the minutes every night. So yeah, I I think that uh, over twenty five and a half is a uh, fairly safe bet. Uh, I think it's actually one of the safer bets as far as um, like the win totals. Yeah, and not to sound too biased, but I I would agree with that. Um, obviously, last year shortened season, winning twenty games. But if you extrapolate that, assuming they win the same pace, it's twenty two, twenty three wins. It- yeah, it's basically twenty. It's like twenty two point eight seven wins, so we can call that twenty three. Yeah, and then you look at, I guess, 
obviously the team I think has gotten a little bit better. I don't think adding Cade is going to have the massive wins impact that I think fans kind of hope it's going to have. You know, going from twenty to thirty-five, that's just not going to happen. But I think if you even last year the team they were bad on a wins perspective, but they weren't bad from an actual player perspective. Like, sorry, they were bad, but they weren't as bad as uh, the record suggested. I think they were in a lot of close games. It's more their youth that lost them games late. So I think if they can scrape together a few more of those closeout wins that they maybe struggled to do last year, I I think, yeah, I'd have them winning, yeah, 30 to maybe 32 in a a best case, you know, assuming everything kind of goes right. But yeah, 25, I think is kind of low. Yeah, actually, if you look at their uh, their net rating from last year, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I'm not going to pull it up, but um, yeah, if you look at their net rating from last year, I think they were like um, only like seventh or eighth worst. I think it, I think they had something like a 26 or 27 win, uh, um, like uh, assumed net rating. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it goes to show because of that youth, uh, because of the the uh, lack of continuity in the the, uh, the starting lineup, uh, you know, especially down the stretch as the season went on um, with, with uh, injuries and, you know, four straight rested games for Mason Plumley and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that uh, they had to like bend so far to their own way to lose as many games as they did. <laughs> and, um, and when, when they did have their guys out there, um, they were maybe a little bit too good to be uh, that 20 win team. So I just think that all the factors combined, uh, it, it, they were, they're a team that can very easily just step into yeah. uh, more than 25 wins at the very least. Yeah. And I just love that the, the legacy of last season is that, you know, the two guys with triple doubles are not, no longer on the team, Mason Plumley and Dennis Smith Jr. God, and it's so funny that Mason probably is just racking up those triple doubles because Andre tried so hard. <laughs> <laughs> he tried so hard, never quite got there. No, yeah, oh, it's sad. Um, uh, do you have a bold prediction for the Pistons this season? Oh boy, um, it's it's tough to be bold about this team uh, for some reason. Like most years, I do have like some like concrete bold predictions that I'm willing to like go all out for. Um, I think maybe Troy Weaver's like first day as general manager, um, maybe broke me of my, my willingness to make bold predictions about the Pistons because uh, nothing was um, bold anymore. Right. Yeah. Like anything, uh, anything I could imagine was like, not even, uh, <laughs> not even like a drop, uh, compared to the boldness that's being like, um, or op- operated with, uh, behind closed doors. Uh, I, I think that it was not that difficult to sort of like figure out what things were going to happen under yep. uh, Stan Van and under uh, Ed Stefanski. Um, but like Weaver threw that book out and is like just furiously writing a new book as we speak, as far okay. as uh, what to expect. Um, you know, I, I still think Josh Jackson is going to get traded by the deadline. <laughs> it, it barely seems like a bold prediction since it's something that I've just been like hammering away at for uh, basically ever uh, and have been wrong about every single time. I, f- I feel like a, a doomsday preacher, like setting a date for the end of the world. And then when <laughs> it, it comes and goes, I'm like, it wasn't me that was wrong. It was the world that was wrong. It's this date. <laughs> uh, that, that's kind of how I feel when it comes to like expecting Josh Jackson to get traded. Um, but I, I think that's probably the one I'm just going to like hold firm on. And that's probably going to be my, my bold prediction for this team. Yep. 
But my bold prediction, and look, it's bold for a reason, but I think they'll be in a play-in fight. They won't make, make it, but I think play-in fight is kind of a bold prediction as well. I would say that's bold. I'd, I'd say that's a, a good one because it's not impossible. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and if and it's, it, it's far enough out that it will raise an eyebrow. Yeah, yeah, and when it's proven wrong, like, well, it was, I didn't think it would happen. It was bold. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be right about this. Uh, do you have anything to promote before I let you go? Uh, just uh, you, uh, you all can follow me on Twitter at Duncan Smith NBA. You can read my work on uh, hoopshabit.com where uh, I'm covering the, the NBA at large and the, the Pistons in, in uh, particular. Okay, well, other than that, uh, we appreciate the godfather of Pistons Twitter for, for coming on the show. Uh, best of luck for the season. Hopefully we can we can do something or at least have fun. Absolutely. That's, you know, that's, what, that's really what it's all about. Um, also, wins and losses are nice, but uh, it's really the fun we have, uh, you know, finding new memes, more or less, is, is yes. what it's all about. Maybe the real draft lottery with the friends we made along the way. There you go. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you. Comes George, got the step and scoffs one move and counts in the foul. He beat LeBron James with that quick step. A sensational move by Paul George. We are seeing a superstar in the making here with Paul George. Gets the step on LeBron James. The Birdman is just a little bit late rotating over and click, click. Birdman, this is your Kodak moment. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Okay, now obviously my intention for this series was to get someone from each NBA team basically to come on and talk about their team, answer some questions, get the general uh, feeling of the fan base going into the season. And I'm recording this on the 3rd of November, so a couple weeks into the season just because I tried to fill out the rest of the teams, and we fell three short. So 27 out of 30 teams, we got recorded. The last three, which is uh, Indiana, is one of them, obviously, as you can tell by this section. Uh, The Indiana Pacers, I tried my best. Uh, I just couldn't make anything work with anyone. So I'm just going to do the Pacers preview, well, two weeks preview into the season uh, myself. It's not what I wanted, but it's the only way I can get this up with totality. So if you're a Pacers fan, you're listening to this, I am sorry. Um, I'll do my best to capture, I guess, the the sentiment. And that's another reason I kind of delayed it until I had a little bit of data to go off just because, um, you know, at least I can kind of read what Pacers fans are thinking. And hopefully I'll do the team justice. Also, I, I did live in Indiana for four months uh, when I went to uni in America. So I feel like that gives me the absolute base level qualification. But yeah, the Indiana Pacers come into the season. They had a, you know, average season last year. Obviously, a lot of moving parts. Ninth seed in the Eastern Conference playing at 34 and 38. And they come into this season with, you know, a lot of question marks, I think, you know, as a neutral um, and the early parts of the season haven't really been too kind to them. A lot of stuff's happened. They've missed guys like Malcolm Brogdon, Karis Levert, uh, through injury. 
uh, and at the at the time of recording, I really should have had this loaded up before I started. But the Pacers are currently last in their division with a I, I lie, the second last uh, two and six record in the Eastern Conference. Uh, only the Pistons at the time of recording have a worse record. Orlando Magic are also two and six. Um, yeah, so the Pacers just to touch on last season very briefly. Uh, ninth seed made the play-in. And then won their first playing game against the Charlotte Hornets and then lost to the Wizards in the second play-in. So that was the end of their season. But obviously, I'm going to run through the same questions I would do for every guest that comes on this show. For their team, I'll just be talking to myself for the next 25 minutes. I'm going to try and keep these relatively short. I don't want to talk too much about uh, teams that I'm not going to, that I'm not following as intensely. So I don't want to say anything wrong. I just want to keep it pretty short and sharp. But obviously the first talking point we've been going through for all the teams is the most prevalent narrative for the team heading into the season. And this is going to be kind of hard for me to, to, to touch on as an outsider. But for me, I think it's all about Karis LeVert and how Karis LeVert comes back and looks. And his first couple of games this year have looked pretty good. He's only averaged 19 points a game. Uh, sorry, 19 minutes a game. Uh, but 15 rebounds, four assists, 15 and a half rebounds, four and a half assists, 15 and a half points, four and a half assists. Bloody hell, mate. Get it out there. Um, his first game back, he just looked really smooth. But I think because he only played uh, 35 games with Indiana last year in the trade from Brooklyn and obviously had the back injury that's kept him out pretty much until a couple of days ago, I think... This Pacers team is really interesting because it's not a team full of young guys. I look at this Pacers team and it's kind of in the middle between young guys and win now. It's kind of neither. It's it's almost in that dark zone of Eastern Conference mediocrity, which is ne- never where you want to be. But I think Karis LeVert can kind of be that X factor. And I think how he fits into this established core with Malcolm Brogdon, Sabonis, Miles Turner. How he fits into that will be a really, really key part to how the Pacers move forward. Karis LeVert is so different to anything that the other Pacers can provide. Sabonis is a really good player, but he's a, very good on the post. He's very crafty. Has an okay outside shot without calling it elite. Respectable, I think, is the word you'd use. Miles Turner is very much an outside-in big man. Malcolm Brogdon has developed into a pretty efficient scorer at all three levels. But Karis LeVert just kind of has that, uh, not, not to sound too much like a hot takey talk show person here, but he's kind of got that source that no one else on the team really has. Uh, Chris Duarte, their new draft pick, kind of has that cap- uh, that characteristic as well. But if you just look at Karis LeVert's numbers, you know, over his career, 14 points a game, 43% from the field, only a 33% three-point shooter, but he gets inside, um... And I think this Pacers team has been pretty jump shot heavy over the last few years. And I think that they want to get more aggressive attacking because you look at their their rotation and their big man, Miles Turner, is also that guy who's prefers to shoot from the outside rather than take it in. But Karis LeVert, 66% of his uh, field goal attempts over the course of his career are two points. Sorry, I've misread the stat. 27% of his field goal attempts are two-pointers compared to a 33% from three. Now, for a modern-day shooting guard, that's a pretty uh, 
I'm going to say a pretty even comparison if you looked at a bunch of other shooting guards around the league. But yeah, if you look at this Pacers team outside of Levert and Brogdon, no one really creates their own shot. Um, and Chris Duarte is a rookie. So I'm not really going to put him in that basket yet, even though his early signs have been really good. But Malcolm Turner is a pick and pop. Uh, Malcolm Turner, who's that? Miles Turner is a pick and pop big man. You know, Sabonis is very good in the post. But I guess with the way the modern NBA is shifting away from that, there's always going to be that concern that uh, the Pacers offense can get a little bit bogged down. Uh, look, as good as Sabonis is, I don't want this to come across as any sort of disrespect. But especially if you look at their wings, you know, TJ Warren, Jeremy Lamb, uh, Torrey Craig, Justin Holiday. They're good players, but I think the way this Pacers team is built, it's going to be reliant on Brogdon and Levert doing a lot of that ball handling. Uh, and Chris Duarte filled in, I guess, while Levert was out and actually looked really good. But I think long-term, Levert's going to get the ball in his hands a lot more. And I think if Levert can go back to, to Brooklyn form pre-injury, then that's going to be a real uh, you know, real wild card for this Pacers team. Because at the start of the season, they just look kind of sluggish and they look like they're sleepwalking through. Now, the next talking point is obviously about the transactions that the team makes and addition or loss, you know, a transaction that has the largest impact on the team and Karis Levert I don't really think counts you know he's played 30 games odd for them last season so I am going to say Chris Duarte he's only a draft pick he's come in but he's just looked really mature and I think Chris Duarte is one of those guys that's the positive um, you know the positive example of staying in college you know Chris Duarte is 24 years old already right he's 24 and a half <laughs> he's He's going to be 25 next off-season. You know, but he played played four years at Oregon, I believe. But he's come into this season... Um, sorry, I'm just looking up his... Sorry, two years at Oregon, after two years at uh, Northwest Florida State before transferring to Oregon. But yes, Duarte comes into this season, and in his eight games, you know, 35 minutes. So a lot of burden on a rookie with really two years of high-level NCAA experience. And yes, he's a lot older than the standard rookie. You know, a lot of the rookies coming in nowadays, you know, one and done's they're 19 years old. And, you know, they've, they've barely finished their high school graduation, whereas, you know, Duarte has pretty much done a master's degree. Um, but yes, 35 minutes a game, 17, nearly 18 points a game. But what's impressed me has been his efficiency. And I think Duarte maybe fairly or otherwise, maybe a little bit unfairly if we're being honest, and I think I'm probably guilty of this as well, has had this reputation as a, a chucker coming into the league. And I think that just gets given to any, you know, volume shooting guard. I don't think there's much nuance behind it. But his efficiency has been really good. 43% from the field, 44%. But the volume of threes he's taking, he's taking six and a half threes a game and hitting them at over 42%. Now you'd think that's probably going to regress at some point um, but I don't think it's going to completely fall off cliff and even if he settles in around that 39-40% mark that's on that volume that's a really really elite shooting option to have on the wings especially with the ball handling of guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Karis Levert and even Sabonis in the post he's a very adept passer kicking out to the open shooters on the wings and in the corner so I think Duarte offensively for this team just opens up so many avenues like we've mentioned ad nauseum you know the ball's going to be in Brogdon's hands a lot 
and Lavert's hands. And the ball was in Duarte's hands a lot, actually, uh, over the course of the first few games. And he only averaged two and a half assists. I think he was more of a, a scoring option. There were games where he probably took a couple of really bad shots. And I think if there's one thing Duarte isn't going to be accused of, it's being shy. And I think on this Pacers team, that's really going to be a good quality for them. It'll help, you know, having another credible creative option on the wings. Uh, and TJ Warren, in theory, is this guy as well, but he's had injury problems, so I don't know how he's going to look when he comes back. But Chris Duarte will open up, not only will he open up chances for Levert and Brogdon by sagging a defender off of them and onto him, but traditionally with the Pacers starting lineup in the past, and I'm assuming they're going to be starting Brogdon, Levert, and... Duarte going forward when all things are said and done, you know, in the long term, maybe it won't happen straight away as Levert recovers from his injury. But that's going to open up so much space inside because we know how Miles Turner plays. He stays outside. Sabonis is going to have that middle all to himself. And I think if Duarte can continue on this trajectory offensively, you know, he's probably a little bit above himself right now. But if he continues even close to this level, I think that's really going to open up a lot of options force a bonus who's probably their best player I don't think that's a particularly uh, hot take he's definitely their most consistent player and I think as Sabonis goes if he's averaging you know his 20 and 10 he's their all-star candidate he's going to be the guy that carries this team out of that the mudslide that they're in right now and I think you know that that three guard punch Adding Duarte just gives them so much more firepower and an extra option that really opens things up for a lot of other people. Now, a best case scenario for the Pacers this season, it's kind of tough because I think the middle of the East, which is where a lot of people projected the Pacers to kind of end up, I think the middle of the East, so if you look at Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Brooklyn as kind of that top three, and then you've got you know New York, Miami, Chicago, maybe Boston, as that, that next tier. Atlanta as well, sorry. The Pacers probably haven't improved on the same level as those teams have, um, and maybe not Boston either. But if you're looking at Indiana, I don't think they've, they've, they've got pretty much the same roster, well, the same core pieces as last year. They just add in Duarte and hopefully get a fully healthy uh, a Karis Levert for the whole season, because I think a lot of basketball fans would love to see that. We know how effective Levert is. But if you look at the rest of the East, I'd say I find it hard. Best case scenario relies on a lot of luck and a lot of things going your way, both for your team and other teams flailing. But I think a best case scenario is the Pacers fighting for that you know, high-end playing spot you know, that seventh seed, seven or eight seed. I don't think they've got the horses long-term to to really make that top six, especially you look at how strong Miami and Chicago have both looked early in the season. New York have looked good. Milwaukee are kind of just going through the motions at this point. You know, when they need to, they'll pick it up. Atlanta, Brooklyn, you know, Charlotte has looked really good as well. Uh, even Washington and Toronto. So there's a lot of, and Philadelphia is always going to look strong. There's a lot of depth at the top of the East right now. Um, and I think if you shuffle them all and in a vacuum, the Pacers are probably a step behind a lot of those other teams on a total talent level throughout the roster. They're going to be well coached. Rick Carlisle, we know how good a coach he is. And they're going to play hard on defense. They're going to play hard all throughout the court. But I think if you're looking at top-end talent and, you know, defense wins games and or defense wins championships and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, talent 
and all that sort of stuff wins those random sleepwalking games um, in in you know in like in mid December when you're just trying to get to the Christmas break or then you know in late January when you're just looking forward to All Stars. But I think the uh, the Pacers, I think a best case scenario for them, and it's tough because their roster is kind of built to to be competitive with Sabonis and Turner and Brogdon and Karis Levert. They haven't really got any young guys developing. Even their rookie Duarte is twenty, almost twenty five. So it's it's an odd one. O'Shea Brissett is a, a another young young guys look good. Isaiah Jackson's probably their only real proper young guy. Um, Goga Batadze as well, but neither of them are really getting meaningful minutes right now. Batadze's playing a little bit. And he's actually playing all right. But I think long term, yeah, this Pacers team, it's kind of going to be a. I think a best case scenario for them is they win win the seven eight plane and then make the playoffs. Um, I don't see them advancing much further than, you know, maybe a gentleman sweep in the first round of someone like Brooklyn or, uh, or Chicago. If I'm if I'm being honest, uh, and on that flip side, the worst case scenario. I don't want to talk about injuries because injuries is the worst case scenario for everyone. I think it's kind of a cop out to talk about injuries. But I think a worst case scenario for this Pacers team is they kind of, they keep hovering around this 11-12 spot where they're looking at the moment. They've got that salary committed over the next three years to to Brogdon um, and to Sabonis, both committed through until, uh, well, Brogdon's committed over the next four years, um, including this season, obviously. So three years after this one, Sabonis two years after this uh, Turner is an expiring next off season. Uh, next off season becomes an expiring. Sorry, after this season, so does Levert. But I think a worst case scenario for them is they, you know, they just don't go where they want to go. Levert comes back and he can't maintain this, the rage that he had in Brooklyn. Duarte, his shooting proves to be, or his offensive production proves to be, I guess, not a mirage, but you know, unsustainable and he falls back to proper rookie level shooting uh, and it all falls apart. You know, Rick Carlisle has proven he's a very hard coach and he'll get the best out of his players, but what works in Dallas might not work in in Indiana. It, um, there's a lot of variables at play here and I think Indiana's got a pretty strong locker room. But I think a worst case scenario for them is that, you know, this team doesn't really go anywhere this season. They hover around that 11-12 spot and they start I don't know if they'd look like sellers at the deadline because these guys are still young enough and there's not crazy salary committed to them. But I think there might be some serious questions next offseason if this Pacers team, you know, does finish 12th with a 32-win, 34-win season, you know, whatever that figure ends up being. I think there's going to be questions this offseason if the Pacers kind of have another year of just middling around that lower end of the conference. Now, is there an underrated guy or a rookie or a draft pick that I'm excited about to watch for the Pacers this year? Well, I've kind of covered Chris Duarte already, so I don't really want to talk about him uh, anymore. I'm actually going to go uh, Isaiah Jackson, and it look, it all depends on the minutes he gets. Um, and I'm just pulling up his basketball reference now, but I think Isaiah Jackson could be that guy long-term, especially if things you know, don't go the way that Indiana wants him to go. He was their first round pick, one of their first round picks this year, pardon me, uh, from the Lakers traded to Indiana. 22nd overall. 
he's only 19 years old still. He doesn't turn 20 until January. Went to uh, went to Michigan. You know, had a, a his college season. I'm just pulling that up now as well. Just want to get some numbers here. Yeah, 20 minutes a game at Michigan. 8.6 rebounds. An interior guy. So kind of the opposite to... What am I talking about? He went to Kentucky. I've seen Michigan. He's from Michigan. My bad. Sorry, he's from Michigan. He went to college in Kentucky. But yeah. So uh, eight points and six rebounds a game. Didn't shoot any threes. He shot two threes all season. Had a decent enough stroke at the free throw line, 70%. uh, And 55% from the field. Uh, Two and a half blocks a game. So he's that classic interior athletic looking big man. He's 6'10". What's going to maybe slow his development at first and why he won't play a lot of minutes is he's very, very light. He's very skinny. Um, and maybe he turns into a modern day NBA four, but I think with his lack of shooting range that he showed at Kentucky, it's going to be hard to validate playing him next to someone like a, um, like Miles Turner or Sabonis straight away. I know they can both play outside. Um, he could probably work with Sabon- uh, with Turner. Sorry, that'd be a really good defensive pairing. Sabonis, maybe not as much because I don't think Sabonis has the same reputation as a shooter that uh, Miles Turner does. But I think, and look, this also depends on, you know, injuries, obviously, but also how I think Indiana's season ends up going. And if they do have closer to that, to that worst case scenario that I think could happen, you know, if they don't really go anywhere this year and they start looking to the future, then Jackson's probably part of that thinking he's only played 11 minutes this season so far um so you know not, not really anything any meaningful minutes but if you want to extrapolate those into a per 36 stats he's averaging 10 points and 13 rebounds with three and a half steals so you know there's hope although he is averaging nearly 10 fouls per 36 minutes <laughs> um yeah i don't think jack's gonna get many minutes and i think he's probably gonna spend a lot of his time in the g league uh, with uh, with Indiana's affiliate or whoever Indiana signs, I don't think they have a direct affiliate actually. Um, well, Fort Wayne, sorry, of course they do. Fort Wayne Mad Ants. So yeah, I think Jackson's probably going to spend a lot of time uh, in the G League this season, spot minutes. But yeah, he's on. He's a very very raw young tweener big man. He doesn't have the shooting to be a modern NBA four at this stage, but he's definitely got the the athleticism but not the build for an NBA five. So it's going to be interesting to see how he develops over the course of the season. And then obviously the other one is Crystal Arte, but I've spoken at length about him earlier. I think he's already, his start of the season has been really, really good, really surprisingly efficient considering his style of play. And, and hopefully for Indiana that, that maintains, uh, you know, over the course of the rest of the year. Uh, if there's anyone on the paces, I think could win one of those individual awards. Uh, I think, well, Sabonis is probably their most likely all-star candidate. He's their most consistent performer. But I think it's probably going to come down to, with someone like Sabonis, as good as he is, he doesn't have the pop that a lot of the other stars around the league do. So I think Sabonis is a wins and losses selection more than anything, um, which is which is unfair because I think, you know, all-Star isn't really about that, I don't think. But at the same time, I don't think Sabonis is going to make the All-Star game, even if he is averaging 20 and 10. Um, but if Indiana's, you know, at 13th in the Eastern Conference, by the time the All-Star team gets announced, then yeah, Sabonis ain't, ain't breaking in over someone else who's maybe a little bit less counting stats, but way higher up the ladder. Um, 
I think Sabonis is their most likely all star candidate though. Outside shouts for maybe Brogdon or Karis Levert if they uh, continue, or uh, if they really uh, kick on. Sorry, uh, I think it helps that I've got knowledge of a couple of games of the season now. But I think Chris Duarte is probably an outside shout right now for Rookie of the Year. Um, not really close to the early leaders of Scotty Barnes or Evan Mobley, but he's definitely up there, um, just based on his production so far. I'm looking through the rest of the roster. Jeremy Lamb is kind of the quintessential sixth man guy, that sixth man candidate, just that bench scorer, just comes in, takes, you know, 10 shots a game, can rack up 15 points pretty quickly. Efficiency doesn't really matter for that sort of award. Um, and then Miles Turner is, is, I guess, an outside shout for some for like defensive player of the year. Um, Malcolm Brogdon could be an all-defensive guy. But yeah, if Sabonis makes all-star, then Pacers have really kicked on, and then maybe even Sabonis is in contention for an all-NBA third team. But th- th- that seems more unlikely than than likely. Um, so I think the main candidates would be, yeah, Sabonis for an outside shout at, at all-star, maybe... Uh, uh, a Miles Turner defensive or Chris Duarte rookie of the year, but again, they're all like 151 to one. They're all they're all absolute long shots. You know, I'm not I'm not sitting here and putting money on it if you if you ask me to now. Uh, and obviously, we talk about the wins totals for each team. Uh, the Indiana Pacers wins total is 43 and a half. I have actually. I put a bet on the paces at the start of the season, so I can confidently say this and have receipts because I'm not, you know, I'm not bullshitting or saying this because, um, <clears throat> you know, because of their record now at two and six, but I did actually bet they're under. And the reason I did that is I look at their projection compared to the teams I think will be around them. Um, they've got a higher win-loss projection than Chicago and New York, who I think are teams who... Are, I was low on Chicago, but I think Chicago is still very clearly better than Indiana. And the record obviously proves that right now. But I also thought New York was being disrespected. And I thought both of them, like I had paces at, at a, as a play-in team, if I'm being completely honest. And I don't think the 43 and a half projection really reflects that. So I'm going paces under and I've, I bet the paces under. I think they'll probably settle in around 36 to 38 wins. Um... That's just me, and I could be proven completely wrong, and there could be Pacers fans digging this up in six months to call me an absolute idiot, and that's fair enough. Go for it. Um, any any publicity is good publicity, but I, I, I definitely was a lot lower on the Pacers than that line would suggest uh, the, the odds makers were. Uh, and finally, we always talk about hot takes. Do I have a hot take for the Pacers this season? Oh, thanks for asking, Ben. Um... It's, it's kind of hard to give a hot take about a, a team that isn't yours. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to say a hot take. Well, this is a hot take, isn't it? I'm going to say Pacers missed the playoffs, so they finished 11th or lower. And I'm going to say that one of their guys is traded um, at the deadline. It's a hot take. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not confident it will happen, but it's a hot take that I think is within the slightest realms of possibility. So let's say the paces are like 13th at the deadline. I think Miles Turner could be traded or, you know, maybe even uh, Karis LeVert. I don't think Sabonis will be traded or Brogdon because of their salaries. Um, not because they're big. LeVert's a lot. LeVert is got, 
you know, it's hard to trade someone you just traded for. And Sabonis is kind of that franchise cornerstone. Uh, sorry, Brogdon and Sabonis, sorry. Uh, Brogdon and, yeah, they've both got that long long committed salary. Uh, Levert, I think, could be traded if, yeah, if, you know, he doesn't prove up to it. I think Miles Turner's probably the easiest to train out of those four, just because he's got the less length on his contract. Um, and he's a really good modern NBA five for a contending team who might be struggling in that area. Not the best rebounding big, but a really good rim protector and can hit, you know, high 30s from three. So that's my hot take. The Pacers missed the playoffs, but then, uh, but also one of those big, big four for them will be traded at the deadline. Again, do I think it's going to happen? Probably not. But hot takes are hot takes for a reason. Uh, so yeah, that'll bring us to the end of the Indiana Pacers pre-preview after two weeks. Uh, like I said, I did try and get uh, some people on for this. Uh, unfortunately, it just didn't work out. We did manage to get 27 out of the 30 teams recorded, though. So I don't think anything's been too uh, aged too poorly by the start of the season. So yeah, thank you for listening, uh, and see you next time. Now, Jeff, with 9.5 remaining... A miracle finish would have to obviously happen for Phoenix to pull it out. And again, they're out of timeouts. That's why you've got to concentrate on the details. Booker, turn, shoots, fires. Shot won't go. Tucker the rebound. And that'll do it. It's over. The Bucks have done it. The long wait has ended after a half century. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions once again. All right. Welcome back to Beyond the Fences NBA season previews, continuing on and joining us for all things Milwaukee Bucks from the fabled internet himself, Tim Ray. How are you? Back again. You've, you've assembled 29 of the brightest minds in basketball from Twitter and me for this preview. So... Yeah, well, you are borderline on call now. You're on the be on the fence payroll, so why would I look elsewhere when I can just hire from in-house? Also for the easiest preview, so it's the one nobody cares about anymore. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you won the title. That's pretty good. Pretty big. How, how are you feeling? Like a weird sense of accomplishment. Um you personally, <laughs> yes, you personally achieved your goals. I did more than Jeff Teague to win a title. I just <laughs> want to put it out there. I, I put in, I think like over a decade of watching the team is a little bit more than sitting on the sidelines getting paid to play like five minutes. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's why the, it was awfully short off season. Not enough time for it really to soak in. And then we're sort of back at it again. And then you're sort of looking like existentially about like, you know, they've reached the mountaintop where to from here. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I support a team that is notoriously shit. So we'll never have this. <laughs> You've been chasing ghosts. We'll never have this crisis. Well, yeah. only, it's only, only since you've started following them. They're very good beforehand. Oh, yeah, true. I think, yeah, well, I always cite 2K5. I don't want, actually, this isn't a Pistons podcast, but yeah, I always cite 2K5 as the thing, but I'm probably actively following 2000. 10, uh, which I think was the first year they missed the playoffs and it was just all downhill. It's Rough. similar to the Penrith Panthers getting on the bandwagon where I thought was the like the start of the hill, but turns out, no. 
but here we are. Anyway, Bucks, it's not about the Pistons or other sports. So, you know, obviously with national media um, or even just the, gener- uh, the general fan base, we all love a narrative. So surrounding those NBA champion Milwaukee Bucks, what is the most prevalent narrative going into the season? I think, obviously, just coming off the title, I think the narrative shifts around the Bucks from is Giannis that guy to, like, more how many can he get? Like, is he just a single title guy or are we talking, like, all t- like obviously, probably already cementing his legacy as sort of an all-time player, but sort of where is he going to rank um, sort of chasing ghosts, so to speak? Um so yeah, I think that's probably the main thing, um, and then probably secondary to that, there's probably a, an odd sense of like doubt and national media doubt in terms of like, you know, people will say that the Bucks sort of walk to the title because other teams are injured. So I guess it's up to them to sort of vindicate that with another strong performance. I guess. Um, I mean, it's it's quite odd that there's that they would feel sort of pressure to validate something that they ended up winning. But I feel like, I mean, you know what NBA media is like. Um, I feel like there's a sense of that as well. Yeah, I've always I've always thought that the 2021 title was uh, had a massive asterisk next to it. <laughs> so I'll, I'll look forward to looking back on this in 20 years with, you know, disinterest with almost chagrin. I think obviously the there there is a certain element that the Bucks title will get shaped by how the rest of sort of Giannis's career pans out, right? Like if this is one of many, then maybe it's I don't want to say it's not it's becomes insignificant, but then it becomes part of a, a greater sort of picture there. Or is or is this sort of you know like I guess already like the sort of Raptors title or a Mavericks title, um, where it's sort of like great players one peak there. Um but yeah, I guess that's just sort of an odd thing. Um, there's always seems to be some sort of um, national media can never be upbeat about everything. There always has to be some sort of criticism. Um, and I guess that's probably it, which seems again, sort of weird and odd for the NBA champion that there would be some sort of sense to, to validate um, winning a title, especially in the NBA where it's so hard to do. Um, and I mean, it goes without saying every NBA champion needs some element of luck to win. Um, I think as well, because everything with certainly at least with the Brooklyn Nets is so hypothetical that it it creates that sort of haze there as well. Also like other teams beaten up as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's probably where the narratives are at, but then again, you know, the Bucks just won a title. So who cares? Um, (laughs) Is that going to be a lot of this episode? Just who cares? That is like, that's the big, uh, sort of thing to remember. Um, you know, if the Bucks have a problem, it's like, okay, well, they've already done, they've already done it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it's it's always hard to logically judge a squad just after they've won because it, it's mainly emotional and there's a lot of highs and yeah, I guess it, it's all just sun, sunshine and lollipops. At this point, isn't it? Pretty much. And like I said earlier, because this has been such a short off-season, um, it really hasn't s- sunk in yet and hasn't feel like there's been... You know, the Bucks. 
only won the title just over two months ago, and we're already talking about next season. You know, players have already changed teams from the from the title winning teams. The you know the uh, the composition of the league has already changed through free agency and etc. Um, you know, it just feels so rushed. Um, particularly because it was something for the Bucks, which always felt in the distance. Um, never quite sure whether they were going to reach it. Um, yeah. And then for it to be, happen, this monumental event, and then feel like the rest of the league has moved on. I think we had this with the Raptors title, actually. I remember saying this to you when they won, that everybody was like, oh my God, Toronto won. Yes, this is amazing. And then was it LeBron went to the Lakers like a week later and then everybody was just thinking about next season? <laughs> um, yeah, that's small market energy. Yes, a bit of that as well. I guess that's come back to bite me, noticing that. Yeah. All right, let's move on from narratives. Um, which transaction, so, you know, a, an addition, loss, uh, player or otherwise, do you think will have the largest impact on the Bucks? Uh, I think it's hard to go past uh, the Bucks, quote-unquote, losing PJ Tucker. Um, obviously, being such a monumental part of the Bucks championship run. Um not sure if they get it done without him, like his minutes on KD specifically. Um just getting in his face, making his personal security come out to fight him on the court. <laughs> um was that his mum or <laughs> no that was actually his paid security came out to <laughs> during the net series. Um I'd almost forgot about it because so much happened during the yeah. Bucks. Um and it was, you know, heart attack every game. Um <laughs> But yeah, he was such a big, huge acquisition mid-season. Um, you know, they gave up a lot and they got a title in return, so definitely worth it. Um, but again, bit of carpet, you know, pulled out from underneath. Um, you know, from all reports, PJ was willing to stay. Um, turned out to be a, a luxury tax ownership, um, cheaping out, so to speak. Like, granted. <laughs> would have cost them $25, $35 million to sign him for what he got from the Heat, uh, 215 um, But, like, yeah. I think there there's different ways to look at that. Like, you're not paying $25 million for PJ Tucker alone. You're paying $25 million to have him next to Giannis, Chris, Drew, etc. as part of the unit that just won a title. And, I yep. mean, a bit of a sour taste there happening, you know, literally a week or two after reaching the mountaintop. Like... Well- well, I, I remember speaking to you about this pretty much straight away, even during the season as it was coming to a close, you know, looking ahead and noticing how well Bobby Portis was playing and thinking, assuming because, you know, no title team or no good team can stay 100% together unless yeah. you take unrealistic pay cuts and some dodgy third-party stuff, whatever. But... I think everyone had assumed that of all the guys that were probably going to be, you know, priced out of the bucks, it would have been Portis. And then he ends up staying, you know, taking that the, the quote unquote discount, but I, I don't think discount. you would have, sorry. Portis took a huge discount. And then, like you said before, I think there is a quote unquote under the table deal for 23, 24 onwards or He's next season. Onwards sponsored by Menards. He's sponsored by anything in Milwaukee. <laughs> but no, so yeah, so you know what I mean? It's You wouldn't have thought that of all the guys from that team that would be priced out of staying or leaving for that sort of reason, it would have been PJ Tucker. Exactly. Like I probably would have figured him, like obviously he um, he earned that figure. I mean, even still, seven and a half 
a, a season for PJ Tucker in the shape he's in now. Just like, just look at the body of work he's just put out during the playoffs. Like that's an extremely good deal. Um, and he, from all reports, like he would have taken that to stay in Milwaukee. Like um, even if that hadn't happened, like you're probably thinking like, this is a guy that's probably going to stick around for the cheap look to win a ring with Giannis. Um, and like you said, it was looking like Portis had played well enough probably to earn money elsewhere. Um, Bryn Forbes as well, who like funnily enough, went back to the Spurs for, I think, I think he's only getting like four and a half a year. Yeah. That sounds um, about right. But one, he took his sabbatical, won a title in Milwaukee and then back to San Antonio. Um, but yeah, certainly agreed with that. Um, remarkable that's a, probably the flip side to this question and sort of phrasing it in a different way uh sort of stretching transaction i think the bobby portis discount taking what is it it's a two-year ten and a half yes. million dollar deal. Uh, hang on i've got everything open in front of me uh he's on this season well this season anyway he's on 4.3 so it's yeah. actually it's actually two nine yeah and just like an unrealistic level of discount, um, to be honest. Obviously, like I said, there's that player option on 22-23, and it looks like you know there's probably already an agreement in place, quote-unquote agreement. Um, watch the Bucks get fined for tampering on that. Uh, <laughs> but I'd, I'd imagine there would be some sort of uh, deal to extend beyond that in place. Yeah. I can't um, believe... Like, it's, it's unimaginable how quickly these teams work to get these exceptionally... <laughs> uh, uh, convoluted, uh, difficult, you know, complicated contra- yes. contractual instruments done uh, two minutes after they're allowed to start negotiating. It's, it's marvelous. <laughs> it, th- there's probably a weird, like, sort of bittersweet thing with Portis as well as that, like, probably would have been fine with him leaving also because there's probably no topping what he did during the playoffs and, like, that whole sort of folk hero. Yeah. atmosphere around him and walking becoming like the people's champion <laughs> playing so well going from not playing in the net series to, to factoring in the Hawks and then playing in the NBA finals, like <laughs> uh, crazy eyes Porters. Um, yeah. And like the antics and stuff like that. Like there is a certain element to that. Like if you just walked off into the sunset as this Milwaukee legend one season, Almost like better you're fine with that. that. <laughs> I mean, I will keep Bobby at all costs, but yeah, there is, <laughs> admittedly, there is an element of that. The romantic uh, aspect of it, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess looking more towards players that the Bucks have brought in. So they're probably looking to replace the guys that have, that have left in sort of taking flyers on guys. So like Tucker out, semi in like a very raw type PJ Tucker, but sort of the same mold. Maybe you can get something out of him. Um, I mean, you lose Bryn Forbes and then you try to replace him with like Grayson Allen or George Hill. Um, some of the shooting, obviously admittedly not all of it. And you're probably not going to replace him with a guy that will outscore Jimmy Butler in a playoff series. Um, <laughs> like Bryn Forbes did. Uh but yeah, it looks like they're trying to do that, trying to replace the guys on a, on a budget. Yeah. Um, which again, I think all Bucks fans are overly critical of uh, the ownership, evidently trying to save money, especially you know days after winning the title. But I guess they did deliver the title, so that you know, there has to be some element of goodwill there. Yeah, 
All right, let's move on to some scenarios. Uh, for, for you, it's, it seems like a ridiculous question considering the mountaintop you've just ascended as a Bucks fan, but what does a best-case scenario look like to you this season? Just back-to-back? Yeah, I think it's obviously it has the only place that best-case scenario is back-to-back, right? Like, I think the Bucks are going to be very hard to beat now. There's a certain... The, the confidence taken from these guys knowing that they can do it and it's like the element of resilience that, that they had through the playoffs. Like this is a team that, uh, you know, they were the third seed. They had to win a game seven at Brooklyn. They had to play an NBA finals on the road. Um, it was looking like, um, barring pretty wild circumstances that they were going to need to play Eastern conference finals on the road as well. Yep. And they sort of, they took punches. You know, they lost that awful game in Brooklyn game two, which is absolutely blown out, nearly lost by 50. Um, famously, if they'd lost by 50, they wouldn't have been able to win the uh, NBA championship. But uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there you go. You got it. Um, that's a very niche. But yeah, um, I guess, yeah, that would be the best case scenario. Um, and then also seeing... Like I said, Giannis taking confidence from the greatest game of his life, 50 yeah. to close out the NBA championship, um, especially the free throw shooting. Yeah. Um, Chris and Drew knowing that they can do it at, at that level. And then even trickling down to guys like Portis and Pat Connaughton was exceptional through the playoffs. Um, much maligned so, last offseason. Yes, much Pat maligned. Connaughton. Particularly when he got, when an error from the front office made him get paid more. Um, <laughs> Because they stuffed up and realized that they had to pay him more. Um, yeah, I think somebody probably got fired for that blunder. Um, <laughs> but yeah, down to those contributions. And then I guess getting Dante DiVincenzo back, um, probably an underrated yep. acquisition, if you will. Yeah, yep. Um, and just in general, a, a deeper squad than they had, at least at the end there. Just just good vibes, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, can you even think of what a worst case scenario would look like then? I mean, it's pretty. The elephant in the room would be that Giannis doesn't. If you, I mean, I kind of, I, I can't even say, say it. it. <laughs> but yes, if that were to happen, <laughs> then obviously, you know, we're talking what Golden State have been doing with with Steph. Like you probably just try to acquire quiet picks, of which the Bucks don't really have any. <laughs> um, I guess you sort of back your squad without him to to at least make the playoffs and sort of, you know, try and try and see what they could do. Um, in terms of that, like altering the franchise long term, I don't necessarily think so. They're in that sort of immediate window around Giannis now, um, where it probably looks more like um, what OKC were doing when sort of Durant was out or Westbrook was out. Like they would have still deep runs, but maybe not necessarily get all the way back there. Um, yeah. I guess, yeah, like I said, that's probably the worst case. Uh, but maybe a more realistic one would be. And maybe not necessarily a worst case scenario, but a more realistic scenario, uh, given where the Bucks are, would be not getting anything out of sort of the young guys that they have at the moment, uh, because they're sort of integral to contention beyond the period of which you've got guys like Chris and Drew and Brooke under contract. Um, and obviously, there's probably going to be sort of two runs with Giannis, as it seems they're going to be this run with the core that won the first title. And then there's going to be Giannis and whoever's on the Bucks after Drew and Chris uh, 
Yeah, I forget like sort of how finished their deals. Like yeah. how old they because they're both like they're Chris is thirty, Drew's thirty one, right? So Yeah, they're going to obviously retire and move on before Giannis has probably finished his prime, right? So there's going to be probably a second era of the Bucks starting I think it's 24, 25, 25, 26, when sort of the deals run out. Yep. Um, obviously, it's pretty unthinkable that, that Giannis would leave now. Um, so, yeah, I think taking it all back, I think not getting stuff out of guys like Nora, um, Dante DiVincenzo, um, and then trying to find other young guys with the very few picks that they have yep. um, would present sort of difficulties in that year-over-year contention. Well, speaking of young guys, and I think the the sports media's favorite word to use is underrated to the point that they've become so underrated that they're overrated. But Chris in Bell's. that, yeah, but <laughs> in that sort of vein, which you know, draft pick, rookie guy, rookie scale guy, you know, quote unquote underrated player, are uh, you most excited for a breakout this season? I think there's only. That's probably only like one choice on the Bucks, like given where they're at, and it's Jordan Nora. Um, was pretty good for Nigeria at the Olympics, twenty-one points, forty-eight percent from three. Um, doesn't play a lot of defense, but he can certainly <laughs> get buckets. Um, we saw that at summer league as well. He, he dropped twenty, and yeah, I guess the question is whether he can play defense well enough to sort of crack that seven to eight man shortened rotation for the Bucks in the playoffs. Yep. Uh, and there's sort of like I was just talking about there, there's a bit of pressure there to find minutes from him uh, given the Bucks sort of situation in terms of longevity um, and these, and these contracts, obviously it's also Dante DiVincenzo's last year before he's a restricted free agent. Um, so I guess um trying to decide whether you're going to keep him or whether you're going to be priced out is also sort of an issue there. Um, I guess that would be the sort of the secondary answer to this question would be the Bucks are essentially playing Dante against Grayson Allen this year to see who they, they're going to extend. Yeah. Um, Dante obviously was quote unquote traded for Bogdanovich <laughs> and then he was kept on he he was started for the Bucks for you know most of the year and into the playoffs. He, decent, but probably a little bit under expectations, and then probably like that in the playoffs at the beginning, and then unfortunately gets injured because um, of a, t- a dirty play from Dragic, a bit of a jersey pull, um, and then he, he's forced to watch this team that he starts on, and you know we consider him a valuable piece of the Bucks certainly. He. He watches watches on as they win the NBA title. Um, yeah, it's got a sting. It's got a sting from well, a certain point of view. Yeah, <laughs> like he's going to get paid. And are they going to? You know, if you would ask me, I think ownership would probably let him walk. Like they've just watched the team win win the title without him. As good as he's been, they probably aren't going to pony up the money that he's worth. Well, they're not going. Well, they didn't even do it for PJ Tucker, who actually contributed to the title. So, well, to the finals exactly. anyway. So. Obviously, there's a certain age element for PJ Tucker, hmm. Dante being like 13 years younger than him. <laughs> um, but yeah, the addition of Grayson Allen and, 
Grayson Allen, sorry, certainly throws a spanner into the works there, given that, you know, very similar position, very sort of similar play style, probably a better shooter. Um, hashtag sneaky athlete. Um, <laughs> yes. We'll, which, we'll which is code for white in the NBA. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, yeah, we'll probably have that sort of, you know, he's a bit like Delhi and that you hate him until he's on your team. A um, bit of that reputation out there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's also, I, I guess, a, another thing to, to watch probably with the Bucks this season. Um, I, I guess a couple of a quote-unquote unrate, underrated guys um, yeah. would be the the reclamation projects that they've sort of gone for this year being semi Ojale and Rodney Hood. Um, you know, if they can get playoff minutes out of either guys, that's a huge win considering what they've signed them for um, being minimums. Uh, obviously you don't hold too high a hope given sort of the track records there. <laughs> semi actually famously being a, a quote unquote Giannis stopper. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, well, I guess we're calling him homeless PJ Tucker for the moment. We'll see what he can bring sort of in the system. I guess you back that players that may not necessarily have flourished elsewhere are going to look good next to one of the greatest players in the NBA on the team that's just won the title. So there's always that sort of, you know, hope there. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, you, you certainly couldn't call it from here, but you know, where were we 12 months ago with Bobby Portis? Yep. Very true. Now the next question is probably the most pointless question I'm going to ask in this entire series of team previews. But if there was a player on the Bucks that was going to win an individual award or accolade, who would it be? No, no. Uh, I think uh, Sandro Mamu, Big Mamu, was going to win Rookie of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I think the interesting thing here is, and I'd be interested to hear your thought on it as well. It's like, oh, has neat. Giannis won back sort of the media favor to break the sort of, uh, you know, how voting the voters get tired of the repetition? Has Giannis done enough? through well, the playoffs and last year to, to consider whether he could win a third MVP. Well, I think we, we've mentioned this before, you know, not to spoiler, but we are regular podcast partners, even though this you're not really meant to be on this one as much as you are. But I think we've spoken about this before that the MVP, well, all the regular season awards are really awards for the regular season and the previous year's playoffs because there's yep. not really an award for that sort of stuff. So it just like whether rightly or wrongly, the the thinking just lingers onwards and it filters through. So I think when you look at Giannis, and I'm conscious of the time here, but when you look at Giannis from the playoffs last season, and then you know he's going to have that narrative vote straight off the bat. So that's at the yep. start, that's already going to give him some credit with the voters. And then you look at all the the other the external factors, the macro stuff, like oh, you know, who's come from this humble village in Greece to you know running through Milwaukee, this, that, and the other, you know, looking like trying smoothies, God bless America, all that nonsense. <laughs> you you build up this narrative, like this borderline voting empire, and then yeah, he gets the repetition, and you know, people look for excuses to look elsewhere, even if there is a, a clear cut winner that but that they may have won it two or three times already. So I think based on that narrative being shifted back to can he win to uh, how many can he win? Then, yeah, I think he starts as the presumptive favorite. Yeah. I'd say that's a decent, decent call. I think as well, given how sort of 
I don't know whether it's how how right it is or how accurate it is, but given the sort of general air around Jokic's MVP last season, like already people, there's a lot of people that seem very suspect on it already. Like I think it was a clear MVP, uh, but there is that sort of narrative element. Yeah, and I think for once it may actually help Giannis this year. The only sort of the obvious drawback of that would be that the Bucks just cruised through a regular season last year after, you know, being the team that motors through it and wins 60 for two years straight that, you know, like historically great point differential and whatnot this year, they decided to try everything for the playoffs and just sort of cruise through the regular season. Yeah. And then they won the title. <laughs> Seriously, again, probably for Giannis to win an MVP unless there are like major injuries around him. And there's that sort of, external narrative factor of something like Giannis is doing this by himself. This is incredible. Like that's, that would make me doubt um, that happening. And then probably looking elsewhere in the league, you know, there's, there's probably guys that are earmarked to win one eventually. Um, You know, I think Embiid, (laughs) Embiid obviously, you know, being in a race last year, factoring in, I think obviously Luke, we're eventually going to get to a, to a phase where Luka Doncic is going to factor for one or two or, you know, uh, et cetera. Um, and then questions of whether other guys get there. Um, okay, Cunningham. But I guess, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can keep saying it. Is, it, is he even going to win Rookie of the Year? I've, 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 I'm just continuing my trend of all the previews I've recorded so far, mentioning the Pistons at some point. Just, you know, it's my little <laughs> Easter egg. I guess to round out the question... Um, obviously Giannis is going to factor in for all NBA. He's going to, all defense is like, you You could vote for it now before the season started. <laughs> if he's healthy, he's going to be on that. Um, probably not enough for Depoy, but he's, you know, he's already won that. Uh, and then just, I guess for other guys, I think Middleton, like you were talking about earlier, uh, partic- it's particularly prevalent for all-star voting uh, last year's playoffs. I think Middleton's probably never going to miss you know, if if he's good enough or thereabouts, he's going to be in. You know, coaches vote for All Star. Um, maybe he factors for All NBA, um, and I think Drew Holiday as well probably factors in for All Star. I think very similar to Chris. Um, yeah. Massive reputation off the Bucks winning a title, um, and then he's probably a lock for All Defense as well. Maybe Brook Lopez factors, but um, again, will depend on how the Bucks attack the regular season, which I would say is probably not. Uh, probably not every night because I probably don't <laughs> need to. Uh, you're you're a, a, a somewhat of a betting man, so you're obviously familiar with the Vegas wins totals, their over unders. Milwaukee, at least on the thing I've seen, are set at fifty four and a half. Are you taking the over or the under? I think, given what I just said, I'd probably take the under. Um, just because the Bucks probably don't care about the regular season anymore. Like they can punt a Tuesday night in Sacramento. It doesn't <laughs> matter anymore. Like, like I said, they've just won the title, not having home court for most, oh, well, yeah, two and two. Um, but the two most difficult series they played in, they didn't have home court. And, you know, they won a, a game seven on the road in Brooklyn against, yep. you know, God, God form Kevin Durant. Um and yeah, like I said, they take a lot of confidence from that. And then obviously the NBA finals. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I mean, it's tough because it's about where I would set it at. Like, I think the Bucks can cruise to 50 to 55 
Um, and it's just going to come down to, you know, bounces of the basketball. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be like all about, like you said, whether they piss in a few nights here and there, uh, load management, all that sort of stuff. Um, finally, and it's a bit ridiculous because I don't think there is really a, a bold prediction you could make for the Bucks this year. <laughs> but if you had a, you know, a safe, mild, bold prediction, you know, whatever takes your fancy, what have you got? What do you got for us? Yeah, well, we were talking about this before. Like, my what would be my bold prediction every year literally happened last year. Um, so it's it's very hard to um, sort of put your finger on on one of them. Um, I guess maybe I'll take this more of of whether I think they can repeat. Um, I think it's there, probably more optimistic than uh, I guess the the wider sort of senses given. You know, everybody seems to be fearing this, the hypothetical nature of the Nets rather than what they have shown. Also, you know, Lakers, you know, Steph back Warriors, et al. Suns, a year back. Cunningham Pistons. <laughs> the Cunningham Pistons. I mean, they're going to, it's going to be, I, I say that the Bucks are not going to take the regular season very seriously, but those are going to be four very good wins for the Jordan Nawara led Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, no, well, Giannis has beef with Isaiah Stewart, so maybe he'll ask to play in those games. Does he? Uh, I think, remember, they had to be separated at the end of, oh, end of yeah. a game. And then Isaiah Stewart Thanasis, has beef with everyone. Bodyguard, bodyguard Thanasis was in there. <laughs> yeah, Stewart has beef with everyone, though. His nickname was literally Beef Stew. Beef Stew, yes. Um, he literally ripped Dwight Howard's shorts off and got the foul called for him against Howard. So, yeah. That's it. But yeah, like I was saying, I think um, I think decent chance. I, I really want to see, I think the league collectively wants to see Bucks versus Nets next yep. year, uh, or this season upcoming. Yeah. Um, because it, like I said, there is that sort of element of... Uh, or at least ESPN feels like the Bucks need to to vindicate their title by playing against their favorite team. Yeah. Um, and you know, like I've said repeatedly, I'm not sh- I'm not sure how much better the Nets can be. Like the Kevin Durant we saw in the playoffs isn't that Kevin Durant if Kyrie Irving and James Harden are also playing. Yeah. Like I'm I'm not sure how much higher they can get because that was like. Kevin Durant playing like consistently at that level is one of the most impressive things I've seen in the NBA. Obviously Giannis 50 and game six is also up there. Like that's what we're talking. Um, and yeah, I just sort of doubt or question at least. And obviously there are, there are questions over Kyrie Irving. Um, but yeah, what we're going to see from the nets. And I, I think there is, as I spoke about as well, um, the confidence that the Bucks have taken and the resilience from last year is going to play large. Uh, and and also, not necessarily on court as well, but also from Bud. Um, it's a, Actually, we're getting to the end, and it's the first time I've mentioned it, but ridiculous turnaround in both narrative and also just his general quirks of, you know, finally making the right adjustments at the right times, and look what happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> Armchair so, yeah, coaches I mean, were right. <laughs> I mean, 
you have to have the lows to have the highs, I guess. Yeah. I hope to experience that one day. Yeah, you'll get there with um, uh, Kate Cunningham Jr. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got anything to promote before I kick you out? Um, not really. I mean, if people could listen to these, that'd be great. These previews. Um, <laughs> got a very. I've seen the lineups. So I've obviously I've been through the questions. Um, would recommend. I've uh, um, I've what I was going to say. Oh yeah, I'll timestamp these so you know when to avoid certain ones. <laughs> you know, just skip uh, through that, sections. I hope we get stats back on that to see. Uh, mine was the most skipped. No, uh, there are certain platforms do track uh, time, I guess. Uh, what do you call it? Like frequency of listener or volume of listener at certain time points. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to track it. But, yeah, uh, yeah, Tim Ray, it's Beyond the Fence featured writer, regular podcast host, you know, talking NB- uh, hoops, F1 and the hobby. Thank you for joining us to Talk Bucks. Thank you.